Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to highlights from the opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. To hear the full show, download the podcast from iTunes or see 96FM.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Courts 96 FM. Good morning, it's Deirdre here sitting in for PJ on what is so far a pretty nice Friday morning. I think the weather forecast is a little bit changeable, so keep an eye outside before you head anywhere. Um, there's been uh, all sorts of changing weather conditions over the last few days, so obviously stay tuned to 96FM for updates on that and uh, bring a brolly just in case wherever you're going. Lots coming up for you today, including Antishmi Hall Martin live in studio. He's in court today and we'll be hearing from him about the latest on the government's COVID plans as well as putting some questions to him in relation to things that have come up on the show over the last couple of weeks um, such as housing and the pop payment and people having to self-isolate due to COVID testing who are not entitled to any sick pay will be coming up later in the show so stay tuned for that I'm also going to be talking to Gail O'Rourke about the right to die she's a familiar face you'll, you'll have recognised her if you saw her in the papers from a court case a number of years ago in which she faced a number of charges in relation to assisting or the charges were in relation to allegedly assisting in suicide plans of her friend um, Bernadette Ford. So Gail has a very interesting story to tell and one I think a lot of people will have cause to mull over so stay tuned for that as well. Also going to be talking about some books that have been produced by Cork authors recently and the return of live performance with one really interesting one man show coming to stages in Cork soon. I'm going to be talking to Sam McConkey coming up a little bit later on as well about the COVID figures in Cork and what we can expect next in terms of lockdowns um, or what he would think we should expect next at least or recommend uh, but first yesterday if you were in the city centre you might have noticed, noticed some very bad traffic particularly up around the McCurtain Street area and I guess that did tail back in around the city centre and the quays for quite a bit of time Victor Shine from the Cork City Fire Brigade is on the line good morning Victor Good morning, Deirdre. How are you doing? Victor, the, the, I won't ask you to comment on whether the, the Windsor in hotel development is, is under some kind of a bad luck spell, but um, they, there was a fire in this building site, uh, which is currently kind of blocked off from the public. What happened? There was, Deirdre. Um, there was construction work being carried out on the roof of this building, and during that operation, some of the roofing material caught fire and it involved obviously material and a large industrial gas cylinder as well. So from the distance, it looked like an Olympic flame over Cork City. Mm. You know, uh, you could see it from the distance. It was quite spectacular. 
But it did create, obviously, a lot of the traffic congestion in the area. But it was necessary for the um, the operation to get that under control because there was potential of something seriously going wrong there as well. So it happened at 12.13 yesterday morning. And by 13.01, uh, the fire was under control. OK, so it was done pretty quickly. And how long was the street blocked off for, Victor? Um the fire operations were complete at 13.48, so to get back into full operation, then the Gardaí would have been uh, bringing back traffic up to normal operations over a period of time then. Okay, so it was all sorted probably by the time anybody was being collected from school or anything like that. I found myself reversing up Patrick's Hill for the third or fourth time in my career um, yesterday and, uh, and, and directing traffic as well, which I'm definitely not qualified for. But um, in those situations, Victor, who obviously the guards take, take charge of the traffic but um, I couldn't understand why there was loads of guards at the, the Ledgerplex end of um, McCurtain Street where no traffic comes from and none at the other end. What do you do why yeah, that would be? I, I would imagine due to the natural blocking of traffic on McCurtain Street that they couldn't move and the potential risk to that building there was a potential of an explosion on top of that building yeah. yesterday. So um, safety around that cordon that we had in place was critical to us, you know, yeah. and there was a natural tailback then that created and held the traffic back. So that operation became easier as you went back towards the uh, Patrick's Hill direction. But um, just to keep, keep you in mind what's happening, these high-rise structures mm. are really challenging for firefighting operations and we're doing a lot of work at the moment developing different plans and uh, developing robotic equipment that we can send up remotely to um, tackle these types of situations for safety for the firefighters and uh, people in the locality as well. Yeah, that, I mean, that development, is that a five or six storey development? It's um, an eight storey building, eight. One, one below, and it was seven storeys above ground level. So it was on the okay. seventh floor that you could be, you would be looking at. And it's on a hill there as well, so that's quite, I would imagine, quite inaccessible. And it's on a hill, so you can imagine, yes, exactly. So access uh, coming down York Hill and uh, along Curtin Street would be quite difficult to access, especially with the hoardings and so on. So all these situations are challenging during during construction operations, but um, we would have carried out uh, pre-fire planning to these um, locations and had uh, quite a, a detailed knowledge of access and how to get in and how to tackle these situations should they arise. Okay, fair play, Victor, and I'm glad that passed with no nobody hurt and no um, no major damage done. I think was there no major damage. It was brought under control very quickly, and the the repair to the roof area that was damaged will be um, will be repaired very quickly within a few days. Great stuff. Thanks very much. And of course, that uh, that development has been subject to, to planning retention. I think as well the facade. Some some changes were made to the facade there, and some object, objections to that. So it's um, worth keeping an eye on. It should be McCurtain Street. I think is going to be pretty incredible when it's. Um, when it's actually done, I think a lot of uh, a lot of d- debate about the kind of um, surfacing that's being putting in put in there. It's quite different to anything else that we have in Cork. But I think, it, to be honest, it can only be a good thing. It's a street in need of a bit of TLC, and um, there's uh, there's certainly a need for some change there. Now. 
Cork and Waterford apparently are on the count, among the counties on COVID alert with level 3 being extended to Donegal today. Cork, Louth, Waterford, Wicklow, Kildare and Galway have been put on alert as a spike in COVID cases has seen Donegal move to level 3 restrictions. Um, there was a huge spike in Donegal. I was watching um, George Lee talking about this uh, last night and this morning listening to him and he was saying it's it's an alarming spike the way it, it went to exponential growth so quickly. When we're looking into Cork figures, we've 21 new cases in Cork today, 324 cases nationally and three deaths nationally um, reported last night as well. Um, so I guess we've been hearing for the last couple of weeks now, since the schools reopened, we've been hearing about the number of schools affected already. Um, cases in uh, Ballincolleg, in Carrigaline, in Carrigtuhill, in Douglas. Um, we had um, one of the we had uh, St Gabriel's closed yesterday because of COVID. Um, obviously, their their population might be a little more vulnerable than the average population, and the school itself, of course, is as one parent contacted us yesterday to say not fit for purpose in the first place. Um, so so the, obviously the danger is greater when you, when you can't kind of manage it in a proper building. Um, Professor Sam McConkey is on the line. I'm going to speak to him in just a moment about this and ask him what he thinks about Cork being next to be locked down. Stay tuned for that. On Cork's 96FM. With the indoor self-service laundrette. Now at the Junction Supermarket, Vickers Road. Every day, washing and drying, done within an hour. Selfservicelaundry.ie this is Court's Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 On Court's 96FM. I'm joined at the line now by Professor Sam McConkie, who's Associate Professor of International Health and Tropical Medicine at the Royal College of Surgeons. Good morning, Professor Good McConkie. Good morning. Thank you. Um, how are you feeling this morning with Donegal in lockdown? Well, I think it's the right thing to do. I wouldn't use a lockdown word, but I think we do need increased uh, restrictions and changes on how we're doing things in counties where the rates are dramatically growing. Because if we don't change the way we're doing things, it'll just continue to dramatically grow and, and that would just lead, lead to more and more problems. So in my view, the earlier we take action when we see rates growing, the shorter and less dramatic the interventions will have to be. Mm. In terms then of this approach of, of counties, um, obviously that's 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 Neffet's uh, preferred solution to doing this, is doing it on a regional basis. Would it make sense to do things on a more granular level even than that, where you might have particular towns or cities? In, in theory, it would make sense to do it at more granular level. The problem is that most of us don't know where the boundaries between one local authority begin and end, mm. whereas we do know where counties, most of us now just know when you move from Cork to Kerry, everyone kind of knows in their head yeah. that you've gone into County Kerry. So we're just ingrained that we know where we are in county space, whereas local authorities or cities' boundaries, you'd have to teach the whole population what are the boundaries, and that, that's a mighty power of work to teach people new boundaries that they don't know already in their head. Yeah, that's yeah, that's a very fair point. In terms of the difference, I suppose, in the past two weeks, I mean, clearly the level of interaction of people has gone up massively with the schools back. And while people may be far against the schools being reopened, um, there, there does seem to be a direct line of correlation between one and the other. Well, what we're seeing in Cork, the numbers from the 10th of September uh, went up substantially and then since the 17th of September have, have jumped up even more mm. and the rate of growth is our number is between two and three so the rate of growth is is, is shocking in, in, in Cork right now. It's very difficult to know 
to what extent it's schools or, or after school parties or workplace outbreaks, I, I, I can't really speak to that. Yeah. I, it is a challenge that some schools, as you've just announced, aren't maybe fit for purpose. They're already crowded. And maybe we as a society need to be having smaller classes of, you know, 15 to 16 children per teacher and, and maybe more spaced out rooms as a good thing for our children's education, mm. even regardless of COVID-19, maybe with separate doors, with hand washing, with separate toilets for each class. So this may be a time where we need to do national investment so parents aren't feeling that the infrastructure of our, our schools is, is suboptimal and suboptimal. That's where our next generation of children and grandchildren are, are going to be developing into the new leaders and workers of our country who, you know, take us through to the future. So we may need big investment in schools and this could be the time to do it. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a case for that. I suppose at the moment, the government and um, NEFIT obviously are so busy firefighting that any big picture things like that. I remember at the beginning of this pandemic, there was a lot of talk about those kind of major social changes and, you know, the benefits we could get from from this. You know, we're looking, people talking about working from home and the environment and all those things. Those kind of bigger picture things, I think, have been kind of lost now as, as we enter what does appear to be a second wave. Yeah, I think the bigger picture that we need to implement urgently is a really good, robust public health infrastructure. Mm. And I think it's fair to say that the whole of our public health now has been really kind of run down a bit with understaffing and underpaid and under-organised and under-prioritised for 20 or 30 years. If you go back to the 1950s, where you had Dr. Noel Brown as Minister for Health, who really led a TB control public health system and brought really good control of a previous epidemic we all suffered from tuberculosis, which is largely, you know, fairly well managed now. In the last 20, 30 years, that system has run down. So I think we urgently need a very significant investment, rejuvenation, restaffing and reorganisation of our public health disease control systems. Mm -hmm. That's where the Asian countries like South Korea and Australia and New Zealand have done much better than us because they'd seen SARS-1 and they'd seen MERS they, they had a plan ready to go at national level to, to control it, whereas we're, we're just in the process now of having to develop those plans and teach people and train people, get the database developed, get the teams of local contact tracers who can go from house to house, door to door, school to school, set up pop-up testing centres, reassure people with, I'd like someone in each area, Cork, who's available on the telephone that people can call when there's questions, mm. that there's easy access to authoritative, reliable information. Uh, so all of the people in Cork, I'm sure, wondering, you know, what to do if, if we do have increased restrictions there. I, I think we need that available, publicly funded public health infrastructure really strengthened throughout our country. Yeah, there's there seems to be a couple of different issues being highlighted at the moment if, um, in the track and trace system. Uh, one issue is the um, contact tracing. A number of listeners have contacted us to say, mm-hmm. you know, that they were con- they were contact traced, but that it took so long that mm-hmm. um, you know the person maybe had let them know, and it was two days later that they actually mm-hmm. heard from the official contact tracer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, by which time you've given it to anyone pretty much that you've met. Um, exactly. If you you know if if you weren't a where? Well, there is a good app, uh, which meant about 1.9 million of us have that, which means, of course, 3.1 million of us don't. Mm. It doesn't work on old phones, doesn't work on old Android. And for children under 16, I think they're not supposed to download it. So may we need to be subsidising and, and tax-free more modern phones for those who want to upgrade to a phone that will use the app? Because if more than 60 or 70% of us were using the app, that would really help to control it. At present, it's only 38%. Mm -hmm. So this idea of a speedy contact tracing, in my view, will work best digitally. Because the phones are almost instantaneous with a text message.
Oh, that's a really good point. Actually, you would think, though, that the people who, I mean, at the moment we're seeing the growth rate is largely, I think it's among people in the 30s still, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they're the ones that do have those phones. Some do. Uh, unfortunately, not everyone does. Some people like the old iPhone 5 because, for example, it had the little plug-in thing for your earpiece and you don't mm. have to use Bluetooth. So so there are lots of people who are, you know, completely happy and comfortable with, with the phone. So some do and some don't. But yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's the that's interesting about the app. I had actually not taken that into account because the people who have contacted us, I think, mostly have been maybe older. Um, another listener is contacting us to ask whether resources should not be directed specifically at protecting old people rather than community-wide restrictions. Is that trapping old people then, though? Well, not just trapping old people, but unfortunately, our experience of influenza outbreaks is that it's it's sort of there's so much interaction inevitably between young and old because we live in the same houses we care for each other we're in the same community and even in in nursing homes uh young people have to go in to work mm. to do the food and the caring in nursing homes and in hospitals that while in theory that idea of sheltering old people is a good idea in theory in practice it i don't believe we're going to be able to do it effectively enough yeah. to protect the the infection getting into the elderly so it's it's a, it's good in theory you think but whenever you actually try it out we have not been able to do that successfully for the last six months in Ireland and even in the last month or so there's been six outbreaks albeit small in in nursing homes in Ireland so that you're right it not only are they trapped but it's it's not even feasible because we're all interdependent on each other Mm. especially the older more frail who need people to help them and care for them and look after them. Yeah, we're seeing videos, I think, overnight of a house party, a student house party in Sligo, where there were, it looked like up to 100 students in one house, which is kind of a feat of of human engineering, apart from anything else. Um, And that kind of sense of moral responsibility, I think people certainly felt that at the very beginning and people were Mm -hmm. willing to go along with it when it looked like a short term thing. But if you're 20 or 19 or whatever, and now almost a year of your pretty short life has been taken up with this... um, You know, I know it doesn't feel like that when you're 20, but um, mm-hmm. it's a very hard thing to keep people on message, isn't it? Yeah, I'm loath to point the finger at any one group. This idea of pointing at, you know, migrants or, or people yeah. from China is, is very divisive and it doesn't actually solve the problem at all. In fact, it makes it worse. So I don't want to pit the young against the old or the employers against the unions or, or you know, different ethnic groups or counties against each other. I, yeah. I, I feel that's not have way. There are some young people, of course, you know, they spend their whole life on their computer and mobile phone up until six months ago or tell them, get off your phone, get yeah. off your device, go to True. bed. So, <laughs> so there are some that are just more than happy to spend their life uh, communicating digitally and, and just love that life and have a really rich and creative and beautiful life in the digital world. So um, I, I admittedly, that's not, not all, but there, 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 is, there are rich things to do that it's you know, people doing stuff outside. We've really got sports up and running, hopefully now fairly successfully and safely, especially out, outdoor things. So that, that uh, you know, you know is, is, is an outlet. And even I know a lot of our young people are really into music. And I think there's been a, a real surge of, of people learning their music that sort of promised themselves for years to do. And now they've actually got time and space to do it and they're enjoying it. And the, the folk I know who run music shops are saying, yes, gosh, we're sold out. We can't get enough stuff. So, so people, young people are, are really throwing themselves into to enjoying things as well. 
Yeah, and that's very important. I think, though, keeping keeping us all on the on the sort of moral and ethical obligation route, I, th- I think that's difficult for people to just keep it up. Um, in terms of um, somebody is asking here the flu. Obviously, we, we had in the news this morning. You won't have heard our news headlines at nine o'clock, but um, the CUH are advising people not to come to hospital if if they can avoid it, which I think is kind of. I mean, who goes to hospital if they can avoid it? Yeah. Um, you know, because they're already under pressure now. Um, the flu season hasn't yeah. is kind of only beginning. Um, there, you know, there's no reason for this to be a particularly busy time of year. But the hospital is already um, overcrowded. A and E is already overcrowded. Um, we're looking, obviously, at coming into flu season. We're looking now with the second wave, all the other normal things that are happening, and of course with the delay that has happened to some treatments due to to COVID. Um, people are asking a lot of questions about the flu vaccine. The yeah. availability seems to maybe be a problem. But this particular listener has a question about under 12s do you recommend the under 12s get it yes there's a na- there's a new nasal intranasal flu vaccine it's not an injection for for children and, and I, I would would recommend it for for younger people i think that there's some really good changes in our health service that happened in the last six months which is much more can be done on the telephone mm. so all the folks that instead of thinking might drop into the a e department in cuh could actually call their family doctor on the telephone and the family doctors now are providing a really responsive and, and high quality telephone service and that's something that we didn't have in ireland a year yeah. ago even though we're talking about it but that's now available and it's been set up and, and funded the doctors do get quite rightly appropriately paid for providing this advice and a lot of our family doctors are really wise and sensible at directing us as to how serious is this problem and what should be the next step they're particularly good at this let's say triage and, and giving us advice on whether they need urgent referral or non-urgent referral or some other treatment so I, I would encourage your listeners to, to use their family doctors on the telephone That that's a great asset that wasn't maybe there a year ago yeah, the telephone consultation definitely, I think, is, is quite popular among a lot of people. Um, the other thing, I suppose, in relation to that, in relation to the GPs and the COVID test, at this point, would it not make more sense for people to report directly to the HSE rather than have to go through the GP for the COVID test, given how busy they are now with other things? I think the problem then is that you know, a lot of people turning up for, for testing that maybe aren't a priority group mm. and then the testing facilities you know, are, are a limited resource uh, so they may not then be optimally used so my, my view is it's still useful to you because people may think that oh god I might have uh, COVID-19 but they might in fact have symptoms of meningitis and need a different course of action yeah. and and GPs or, or sepsis for example are you know because they're a bit similar yeah. headache and, and fever so GPs are good at this and, and saying well no I'm really worried you're you know, the light effect in your eyes, you're a bit drowsy, you're not talking sense. I think you should go now to the A&E department. So, so G- GPs are outstanding good at sorting out, you know, people who are kind of worried well, as you might say, not to dismiss people because people are worried from people with COVID-19, people with flu, versus people who actually might have sepsis or meningitis who really need to leg it or, or be travel travelling, maybe call an ambulance into the emergency department within within an hour and need effective antibiotics. So, so G- GPs do offer... Uh, in my view, a really high quality service that people who are sort of using them may not fully realise all yeah. the decision making that GP is, is doing about stratifying which level of care do you need urgently. So my, my advice is, is to, to use the GP. Okay, good advice. Another qu- listener wants to know, and I think I think the answer to this is no, but they want to know, are, are there psychologists on NIFIT? I believe there is. A, uh, there was a man, Dr. Nunn, N-U-N-N, who's been 
at the, some of the briefings. So I believe is a psychology background, and he's certainly it's not on Neffet. He's an advisor to Neffet, okay. and he's a behavior, behavioral science researcher in the ESRI. And uh, I've heard him, Peter Peter Nunn, I believe it is, and he's talked a lot of sense in public, in public briefings, and on some of the television media things about our psychological reaction and 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 sort of the, the whole psyche dimension to this epidemic. So I, I've certainly seen him on several press briefings talking wise sense, and I believe he is a psychologist, yes. Okay, yeah, because I know we get, we're get we getting a lot of this from listeners at the moment over the last few weeks, particularly that they're feeling that the cure is worse than the disease, um, that a lot of people are feeling that the restrictions and the various, you know, I suppose the, the, the kind of ongoing low-level misery of all these restrictions is really affecting people's mental health um, yeah. to the extent that, that some people are kind of feeling like, well, if we just sort of live with it, that might be better. And um, What's your view on that argument? As well, famous, as I said to the doll about two days ago, living with this, as we're discovering now, is like living with a tiger in your house. It comes back and bites you. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, these rising number of cases in young people, we're now seeing, as I predicted, leading to rising number of cases in older people, leading to rising hospitalisation, leading to rising intensive care, filling up again, which we didn't have in June and July. Yeah. And, and that will inevitably lead to death. There, there is a time lag. It takes several weeks for all this to, to, to sort of happen. It doesn't happen over a day or two. It's not like, you know, meningitis that sort of kills you in a day or two. This thing lags on and drags on for, for weeks. So I, I just don't feel that living with this is an option. I think we can follow New Zealand. I'd give a sign of hope that about 1, 1.5 billion people, that, that's uh, 1,500 million people all over the world have got rid of this spreading in their community. Almost all of Australia, with the exception of Melbourne, has done it. So places like Perth and Sydney and Cairns, a lot of that led by young Irish nurses who are backpackers doing the contact tracing. They've been able to get ahead of it and control it. As has places like Faroe Islands, Greenland, uh, South Korea, Japan, uh, Vietnam. So we're an island and we can use that. It certainly involves working with the people in Northern Ireland. And Nicola Sturgeon, great in Scotland, has saying Scotland should be really suppressing it to no transmission of uh, SARS-2 in Scotland. So uh, the other island, Great Britain, if you like, is also coming round to this view. And I, I think over time, increasing countries are realising, one, that you can't live with this because it just continues to grumble around in the horrible way that you've mm. just described. And two, that it's possible to stop it transmitting. And about you know 20% of the world has already prevented transmission of it. So I, I'm strong advocate of what we call zero COVID, stop transmission of this in our island. And about, as I said, uh, 1.5 billion people in the world are already living in that happy state. So that, that is the way that I, I, I think is the strategic direction over the next three, five seven years and then you can get back we can all get back to cheering in Croke Park and to going to our rock concerts now we may not be flying to Spain because if Spain still has large numbers mm-hmm. then going back and forth there would reintroduce it so certainly there would be major uh, travel restrictions and certainly it would continue to impact on the cruise liner industry and the airline industry and that that would be not welcomed by, by the airline but I'm hoping that some places you know like maybe some of the Greek islands could have a COVID negative island and then countries that are COVID COVID negative like us and Britain, perhaps Finland and several others could could go to the COVID negative island together to do our Mediterranean sun holiday, if that's what some people want to spend their money on. So, so I think there are ways of 
living well and, and, and enjoying our life uh, while while having this COVID negative state that don't lead to this chronic, well, as Mary Lou MacDonald simply said, this yo-yo effect of up and down, which mm. is intolerable both for businesses and for all of us. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it sounds, that sounds like a great plan, but have we not missed the opportunity to do that? You're quite right that those Asian countries like Australia, New Zealand and South Korea all had a plan in place on the shelf ready to implement because mm. they'd seen SARS-1 and they'd seen mirrors and were ready to suddenly escalate their whole public health system to, to deal with it. So they, they dealt with their first wave, if you like, more effectively than us. But all is not lost. We, we can still develop that plan, as I was talking about, give a mobile phone to everyone so you have a rapid contact tracing, as you've just described as an obstacle for some people in Cork, and, and strengthen our public health uh, control planning facility in Ireland with with staff and and funds and and build a robust national and and county level public health uh, team to deal with pandemics. We haven't really built this into our public health system up until now. We weren't expecting a pandemic. We haven't really got a detailed one. We had a little bit of a plan for flu, for a pandemic flu, but not for anything like a coronavirus that has you know maybe what one percent. Mortality. So, so we have to build that. So it's not too late. No, you can still do that now, and you can still control. An example I would give is Leash County. Remember, about a month ago, Leash was under severe restrictions, whereas mm. the county Leash now the numbers are are well controlled and it's continuing to drop. So, so what we've did in Leash back in the middle of August uh, for a couple of weeks has led to a successful control and decreasing numbers of cases in Leash. So so I believe there are concrete Irish examples of how this has worked. We obviously did a great job, all of us, in March, April, May, mm. and by June the numbers had come down dramatically. Not not enough to zero, but they came down, as we all remember, very well. Okay. Professor Sam McConkie, thank you very much for that today. And our listener who asked about the flu jab says thanks very much for such a comprehensive response. They're delighted with that. So thank you. Um, yeah, it's, uh, what do you think? It's, it's, it's sort of, um, listening to Professor McConkie, it doesn't sound like he believes there's going to be a vaccine anytime soon, which is a bit, um, just depressing, isn't it? Um, but I suppose there is still some hope there in terms of us being able to beat this thing. And that's always a positive thing. Um, uh, question a listener oh actually I can answer this one myself listener um, is the treatment for intensive care COVID patients improving do they know how to help better now yeah we've seen actually Dr Catherine Motherway who was on with us last week mentioned that um, you remember this thing of the proning where they had people kind of upside down um, lying not upside down but lying on their chests we'll say lying face down um, in ICUs I think they're actually doing that now before they intubate people and before they get as far as ICU because it helps so much um, and there are different say they know now that ventilation actually doesn't um, work for everybody and may actually make some cases worse I think so she actually has been quite good on that in terms of the um, in terms of you know talking about how the development in treatment and the development in managing the condition and we know so much more about it now than we did in March um, that really she's been very good on that and I'm sure we'll have her on again in the next couple of weeks uh, listener asks is there any visiting of patients in either of the hospitals that's Dave hi Dave uh, CUH one visitor per patient for 15 minutes between 6.30 and 7.30 and anyone who's been out around CUH will have seen the queues for those visiting times now very well managed socially distanced queues where they're taking everyone's details 
hotels and all that kind of stuff. The mercy is no and a very firm no, apparently. Um, and I know that CUMH, no, no visitors at all. And we will be talking about that again on the show later today because the Mothers of Ireland are really, really, really upset about this. And I can absolutely understand why. Uh, regarding lockdown, listener says the problem with GPs is you can't get them on the phone. And if you do for two minutes questions, you get charged 40 to 70 euro. Now, I have to say that's not my experience with my GP, but I know that practices vary hugely. Another texter says, good morning. I feel if there's a lockdown again, it will lead to more house parties like the last time and scaremongering of our elderly. There must be another way. No deaths in three weeks compared to our English neighbours. Um, we've had three deaths now um, in the last 24 hours, reported in the last 24 hours. So as Professor McConkie said, I think you see this lead in time where you get young people getting it. Fine. They're all fine, you know, in the short term anyway. Um, then they pass it on to their older f- friends and relatives. Then they're the ones who end up in ICU. And that is unfortunately, or people with underlying conditions, obviously not just older people. Um, so there, it, there's a lead in time. But yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody is too keen on the idea of a um, of another lockdown. Now, something totally different in a moment. People might remember Gail O'Rourke. Her face would have been very, very familiar from the court case in which she was charged with a plan to assist her friend, um, her friend Bernadette Ford, who was dying of um, multiple sclerosis. Um, Gail, I spoke to Gail yesterday on the phone and she has agreed to speak on the show today. I think we're having some trouble reaching her, but we will be talking to her shortly. Um, so stay tuned for that. I Interestingly enough, I did a bit of a straw poll on my D-Shocks Facebook page yesterday and out of a couple of hundred replies only I think two people were against introducing assisted suicide which has to be an absolutely massive reversal of um of people's views on this. I wonder is it kind of out of the other referenda or you know what what has changed in Irish society that, that we now feel that this is something we can accept. Um, interested in hearing from people about that. 83 um, We're expecting Taoiseach Micheál Martin shortly on the show with us and uh, I gathered there there were some people here to meet him when he arrived at the station um, from the Debenhams campaign group so we'll be asking him of course about that. Um, coming up though in a moment I was speaking to my colleague Fiona who's been talking to people with disabilities in and around Cork City about the new um, I suppose the new challenges facing them with this reimagining of Cork streets uh, the pedestrianisation and the dining outside has resulted in wheelchair spaces being moved which I know from listeners ringing us indeed has presented quite a big problem to some people so we'll be talking about that shortly just after this. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With a solid fuel depot, now located at the Junction Supermarket Vickers Road. Coal, gas, kiln-dried wood and briquettes for collection or delivery. SolidFuelDepot.ie This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Cork's 96FM. Joining me now is my colleague Fiona Corcoran from the newsroom who has been investigating the uh, campaign by people with disabilities um, in relation to changes that have been made to the layout of the city centre. Fiona, what have you found? Yes, good morning, Deirdre. Well, after the, uh, when the COVID um, lockdown kicked in, Cork City Council had to make a number of changes to the city in order to make it safer for everybody to walk around and to get around in. Um, and part of that plan, the reimagining Cork plan, was to pedestrianise a lot of streets in the city centre. And one of those streets was Pembroke Street. Now, there were a number of 
parking, disabled parking spots on that street. They've now been uh, covered over and there are tables and chairs on those spaces and the spaces were relocated to the South Mall. And where the spaces are now... um, there's a problem in that there's no drop footpaths there. So for people who are in a wheelchair or who have crutches, they're getting out and they can't get onto the footpath. So they have to go out onto the busy South Mall Road and uh, go up along there until they can find somewhere where they can access the footpath. Now, one person, um, that it's an organisation called The Struggle Is Wheel, uh, Leona um, spoke to me off air and she said that her husband is a wheelchair user and uh, she went onto the South Mall and tested it out and she had sent me a little video and she said, you know, the fast traffic is right up behind her um, back on that video. And, um, you know, this is a situation that people are facing all the time. Now, I did speak to the Director of Services in Cork City Council, David Joyce, about this and he said that they are aware of it and he said that, you know, there were a number of changes that they had to make really, really quickly and they didn't have time to plan for everything. Um, But he said that that issue is something that they are looking at and they hope to rectify very soon. Uh, There was another issue, um, a man, uh, a wheelchair user in the city called Eddie Hennessy had shown me photographs and videos of when they relocated the parking spaces that they were too narrow and people couldn't um, comfortably get out of their car with their wheelchair and um, on the other side, the opposite side of the road then where the parking spaces have been relocated to, there were bollards. Now David Joyce said that those issues have been resolved, that they have widened those spaces and removed the bollards. But um, Eddie and uh, Leona were both saying to me that they would like to see um, those spaces, even though they're wide, if they could have like a coloured kind of box with X's on it on either side, just to prevent people from parking over and make sure that there are plenty of space for everybody to get out. Um, They also, I spoke to a lady called Carol Rice and she... um, is coming at it from a different um, situation. She has a short stature condition. So she said that um, for her to get around the city, the parking spaces really need to be very central. Um, And for her to walk from South Mall over to maybe Patrick Street, it's a bit of a trek. And uh, David Joyce did say that there are 100 parking spaces, disabled parking spaces in the city centre on the street and that there are um, spaces in the multi-storey car parks. But Carol was saying to me that with her condition, she can't park in the multi-storey car parks because her arms can't reach the ticket machines and um, she can't reach the, the ticket machine when she's accessing or entering the entering or exiting the, the car park. So um, I think it's not just, you know, like I was asking Carol about coming into the city and how comfortable it is for her. And she said that there are that there are improvements. Have, there have been improvements over the last couple of years, but there are still um, different issues. Some of the footpaths in the city centre are still too high. Some of them are uneven. Some of them are too narrow. And she said that, um, you know, and and she acknowledges that this is a a difficult area, but that there there are lots of disabilities. It's not just people in wheelchairs Mm. and that there needs to be a kind of a coordinated thinking when they're they're looking at this. Like even with regards to, she was saying that, you know, some of the structures that may be on footpaths, if you're a person with, uh, who's blind or who has limited visibility, you might be able to see them and you'd walk straight into them. So, you know, a lot of these um, plans look make the city look lovely and it, and you know the pedestrianisation of the streets has been a great success for businesses but the people with disabilities feel that they're the forgotten people and that they've been kind of left behind in all of this. Now I did 
put that to David Joyce and he said that he completely disagreed with that and he said that it is constant work in progress and today is Make Way Day 2020. And that's uh, an initiative by local authorities all around the country and Cork City Council is um, involved in that. And they're looking at different ways that they can improve. Now, there is an online discussion at 11 o'clock this morning and they'll be looking and talking to different people in the community about challenges and how they can overcome them. Great. Okay, we'll have a listen to what those people had to say to you now. Pembroke Street was placed and the disabled parking spaces were transferred to the South Mall. The footpaths here are too high and in a video clip, Leona of the Struggle is Wheel shows that people in wheelchairs have to travel along the busy road before they can get to safety. So if I get my wheelchair from this van, I have to actually go out on the road, turn, no dishing there, high curb. Director of Services in Cork City Council, David Joyce, acknowledges the problem. That only applies to the southern side of South Mall and we're working on that and we're going to deliver a change to that as part of the new cycling route that's been provided along that uh, location. But advocate for people living with disability, Carol Rice, says Pembroke Street was a much more suitable location. It was built perfectly for disabled parking and with the low bays level to the street, it was a quieter street to be able to get out of your wheelchair, to be able to get out and get your crutches. David Joyce says COVID forced the council to introduce changes very quickly but there are plenty of disabled parking spaces available in the city centre. Unfortunately we had to react very very quickly to COVID uh, which we did and we were not able to put in all of the improved infrastructure that we had hoped at the same time. We have done our best. We are continuing to progress and improve some of the infrastructure and there have been significant changes made over the last number of weeks and months to some of that infrastructure. It's important to point out there are over one 100 disabled person parking bays on the public streets in Cork at present, dotted all around the city centre to give access across the city. There are also significant numbers of disabled parking bays in the multi-storey car parks. Unfortunately for Carol Rice, who has a short stature condition, many of these spaces are not suitable. I can't use parking lots because of my short stature and my arms can't reach the tickets to allow me access and then I can't reach the bays to pay to um, validate my ticket to get out so my only option is street parking and um, we're a one track city so even with the pedestrianisation of Partick Street um, last year it made for us parking down Academy Street if there was no parking there how would we get out of Academy Street Carol loves coming into the city centre but says it can be challenging at times sometimes we take one step forward and ten steps back um, I don't really feel it's very accessible for disabilities there's a lot of curbways there's a lot of paths um, the only way that Um, I suppose the councils and politicians would understand that is if they got into a wheelchair are on crutches without barely able to move their legs and try to navigate the city and then they would understand how very inaccessible it is. But David Joyce doesn't agree. We take a look at all the works that we've done over the years in relation to dishing footpaths, improving footpaths, widening footpaths, providing facilities at traffic signals etc. Cork City Council is always very very minded of uh, accessibility for all citizens within Cork and for example we have our disabled access group, the Cork Access Group, which meets on a regular basis and discusses all of these items that are of concern to members of the disabled community so that we can understand their needs there and what they require and try and do our best to deliver on those within the budgets and resource restraints that we have. And uh, that was David Joyce from City Hall talking about the latest developments. 
listening to highlights from the opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. To hear the full show, download the podcast from iTunes or see 96FM.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan on Cork's 96 FM. And if you're just joining us, good morning. It's Deirdre here in for PJ on this Friday's Opinion Line. I'm joined now in studio by Antishuk Michal Martin. Good morning, Tishuk. Good morning, Deirdre. Uh, you're here this morning, I think, Tishuk, to um, talk largely about COVID and Cork and what's happening. We had reports this morning that Cork may be facing level three restrictions. Can you comment on that? Yeah, I think the situation is we're coming from a low base in Cork City, but the Chief Medical Officer is very, very concerned uh, with Cork City. I think we've had 170 cases in the last two weeks. That's anywhere between 20 and 30 a day on different days. 45% uh, of cases in the age cohort of 15 to 34. There have been some outbreaks in different settings, uh, both in hospitality uh, and in health settings. Uh, And so basically what I'm saying to the people of Cork and the city is we must do everything we possibly can now to prevent any further rises in cases to stabilise the numbers and that means reduce our social contacts um, maintain uh, you know your, your, your social and physical distancing wash your hands very frequently um, watch your etiquette in terms of sneezing uh, and above all just reduce the level of congregation more generally and we can avoid going into level three and we do want to protect as many people as possible in our hospitality tourism sector and the best way to do that is to avoid going to level three and if we all individually and collectively behave accordingly I think we can avoid that. Luckily we're well not luckily but we're, we're coming from a low base therefore we can avoid this uh, but the numbers are going up very very quickly that is what concerns the Chief Medical Officer and I spoke to him on the situation uh, the other week. The return of the universities and the institutes, albeit at a different level with a lot of online um, provision, is a concern uh, as numbers come into the city. So house parties are a no-no uh, and people must not engage in that. Uh, and I think uh, students more generally have to be very conscious of the, of the wider situation. Many, many are, of course, and many adhere to the guidelines. Uh, but that applies to Cork, Limerick, Galway, Waterford and uh, the CMO is particularly concerned about urban centres and cities where the density of population is naturally higher and therefore the disease can spread more rapidly. So if if it is a situation that we have to go to level three in Cork City, is that also going to apply in the county? Not necessarily uh, and um, that's something that will, will be looked at at the time. If, it, if we get to that stage, uh, the, we're a large county obviously, well spread out um, but that's a call that NEFIT will make the public health advice uh, will make that call based on the figures at the time uh, but we still have time uh, to prevent this from happening uh, and the best way to do that is, is to follow the public health advice uh, both individually and collectively and uh, I think we have we've, we are receiving warnings from public health doctors and from the chief medical officer no, relation to this. Uh, and I think we can we can nip this, we can uh, prevent this from happening uh, by adhering uh, to the very basic guidelines that ultimately determine the spread of the virus or not. Since the schools have come back, Tishuk, there have been, I suppose, a lot of people catching up on things maybe that didn't take place earlier in the year. You're looking at a lot, particularly of communions and confirmations. We had photographs of, you know, a group of mums outside a church, not socially distancing, um, you know, published on local Facebook pages. We had a lot of those kind of things over the last couple of months. Do you think things like communions and confirmations have been contributing to, to this rise in figures? Well, anywhere people gather, 
um, contributes to the rise in figures. Uh, wherever numbers uh, are gathered together, uh, you know, there was, without question, that's what that's the atmosphere, that's the situation within which the virus thrives. And that is why when you get to level three, for example, you see the CMO and, and, and Neffet saying, look, you must uh, maintain one visit to your, uh, to your house. Uh, that's it with a maximum of six people. Uh, and I think the uh, I think they do they do contribute. There's no point in saying they don't. They do, uh, and any widespread uh, congregation does that. And the rise of the virus has been within the community uh, and within whatever large gatherings happen. Um, the situation in relation to children um, so far, in terms of the testing that has been done, uh, the positivity rate is is low, zero point five percent. So uh, there's there's reassuring. Uh, evidence generally across the school system that children are not transmitting to children within schools. Uh, they may bring it in from outside into schools uh, but generally the CMO is, is, is satisfied with the situa- situation in primary schools and in second level schools. Uh, obviously at the, the, the higher education end we know the to be fair to CIT and to UCC and to the universities more generally they, they, do, they do have very strong protocols strong guidance for students uh, and there is a particular focus on that now and will be and the USI, the Union Students of Ireland are cooperating very strongly with the Minister of Higher Education, Simon Harris, in that regard. And we will be doing a joint communications approach with the students in terms of communicating the message to third-level students. Okay. In terms then, going back to schools and, you know, that level of of a child-to-child transmission being quite low, I mean, I think that is reassuring for people to hear. But one thing that isn't reassuring for people is the delays in the contact tracing for school settings particularly. We've had a couple of people contact us over the last couple of weeks who have, um, you know, they've known personally, say they've got a text from another parent saying, you know, we've we've a confirmed case, you should be hearing from contact tracing. But they're not hearing for two or three days, by which time, you know, their child has still maybe been in school because that's the advice they're still going to work because that's the advice and the whole thing you know that that's giving a lot of space for something to spread that doesn't have to be there what kind of pressure is the contact tracing system under well the the, the <coughs> there are specific guidelines in relation to how how the public health will advise schools and um each case is different and public health advice locally can differ in terms of who should be contacted and who shouldn't be contacted and what particular action a particular school should take. And um, uh, so more generally, our, the, yeah, the system has come under pressure, but we're meeting demand uh, nationally. We're not under the same pressure, for example, as the testing and contact tracing system is in the UK, mm-hmm. who came looking for some help from us last week, um, in, in, in particularly in Scotland. But but in the Republic, we are meeting demand, uh, and the average turnaround time is, is, is two point two days, end to end. But that, you know that that's quite good. No, there are we do hear from cases as you outlined where it's you you will hear outlying cases where this didn't transpire. We do need to hear of those cases and they need to be followed up. The plan that we announced over a week and a half ago will ramp up the contact tracing even more. They're at the moment recruiting up to 500 people to do the contact tracing, 700 swabbers as well. So overall there will be a staff of 3,000 people involved in from the labs out to the community in the testing and the contact tracing. Is there going uh, to be any increase in lab capacity because I know that that's been an issue? 
Yes, uh, the HSC are looking at that continually. You may have seen a report last week where um, they, they secured additional uh, lab capacity uh, from a German company. Uh, some of their activities are based here and some in Germany. Uh, but overall, um, you, you know, we have capacity now to do 100,000 um, and we did close to 90,000 last week. Uh, and um, that's a very high number. That involves both community testing out in the community. It mm-hmm. involves a serial testing program in nursing homes in direct provision and in um, meat factories. Uh, and what you'll find with the serial testing program, these are where we just do the entire system, the positivity rates tend to be very low. Mm. So that suggests too that in those settings it's when the virus comes in from outside into a meat factory that it spreads like wildfire in the meat factory because of the conditions within a meat factory or within direct provision because of congregation uh, or indeed in nursing homes. So we're keeping a very strong eye on nursing homes and continuing to do the serial testing. And then you have testing in hospitals um, as well. So it's quite an extensive testing program, uh, huge expenditure being spent on it. Uh, But it is very, very important in terms of helping to suppress the spread of the virus. Okay. One issue that has come to us as well, Tishuk, is a lady emailed us yesterday, a listener um, who is working 40 hours a week. Her husband is wor- or her partner is working 40 hours a week as well. Their child had to be tested last week and because of that, they both missed three days work. They're not entitled to sick pay for that period while they're self-isolating, awaiting, awaiting a test. Um, and she said, you know, we want to be responsible. We, you know, we were responsible. But at the end of the week, 100 euro came into that house. Nobody can live on that. What are you going to do for those people? I think that's a, that's a case, a situation we are looking at, uh, and I think in the forthcoming budget we'll see if we can do something there to ring fence some supports there. We did at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, bring in the illness benefit, uh, pandemic illness benefit approach, whereby if people were self isolating, uh, that they wouldn't be out of pocket in terms of, of of workplace, and that's been important in some work situations where. People may have thought, particularly in meat factories, that they may not have had any income if they volunteered, that they had symptoms. Mm. So that's why that was brought in to make sure that they could volunteer and not lose income. Uh, Since the return to schools, that is a situation that can happen. Uh, And we we will see, obviously subject to resources and so on, to see what we can do to help people in that situation because we do want people volunteering. We do want people to behave responsibly and we do want people to do do the, the, the right thing by their children and by the community. Okay. Uh, One of the things that has come up during the week about the COVID messaging and about the advertising around it is the idea of paying influencers to promote the public health message. Is that something you're going to run with? Well, we're certainly looking at different ways of communicating to different age cohorts. Um, And uh, some um, influencers may do it, uh, uh, you know, on, on, on... without income necessity, you know, they may do it, just volunteer and do it. Mm. Um, there's also uh, other people who may be in a better position also in terms of who might want to give a message to the community in terms of their own conditions and how you're protecting me if if, 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 you, if, if we all behave uh, appropriately. But I do th- think the idea of influencers is important. We, we have to, in terms of younger age cohorts, for example, uh, different uh, media platforms uh, mm. are optimal in terms of communicating the message and also different pe- types of people can get the message more quickly across than maybe politicians or others can, to be honest about it. Yeah. The, actually, when you speak of different media platforms, of course, since the start of lockdown in March, local radio stations such as ourselves 
have played an important role in educating the public about COVID but of course there has been a massive decline in advertising revenues. The previous government put in place a one-off funding scheme as well as quite a large advertising spend around COVID which has since declined and most stations have actually availed of the wage subsidy scheme for employees but the longer the crisis continues many stations are facing real problems with the sector's representative body the IBI warning of possible job cuts and cuts to the quality of service um, which obviously has been invaluable to the public that we serve. Um, the IBI is calling on the government for immediate action to help. What can you do? Well, I, I think I'll be meeting with a representative of the IBI shortly after this particular interview um, and we do understand the situation that they are in. Um, we would have thought that advertising revenue made some recovery during the summer uh, as quite a number of sectors of the economy came back after the lockdown. Uh, that's quite interesting. I mean, two of the three um, sectors are doing quite okay mm-hmm. um, and many, many SMEs are back to 60-70% of, of normality, maybe even more. Some sectors still uh, have a bit to go yet mm-hmm. and that's why we need to avoid going to to level three at all possible. But so far we're looking at an intervention of up to 24 billion, maybe more. It could be anywhere between 24 billion and 30 billion of an intervention by the state in helping everybody to try and get through this this COVID-19 pandemic. But we will, of course, because we do understand and accept the importance and the centrality of local radio to the public health message. I mean, you've carried it from the very beginning, Mm. undertaken an excellent job. And also in terms of public morale, we know you cover all the sports engagements and that's more critical because people can't attend matches or couldn't attend in the numbers that one normally would. Yet your station and other stations uh, do a fantastic job in giving that local sports coverage Mm. to people and that lifts spirits and keeps the country going and keeps people going and that's important. Uh, So we will again engage with with the industry uh, and we hope next week to set up a media commission, for example, to have a more fundamental review of media more generally uh, and the interaction then in terms of how we support uh, a plurality of views, mm. uh, diversity of opinion at arm's length from the state, of course, which is what a true democracy should have mm. uh, and should facilitate and encourage and nurture. Okay, I'm getting a lot of questions coming in about different local issues, so we'll come back to those in just a moment to take a quick break. Uh, Michal Martin and Tishuk with me after this. The Opinion Line on Courts 96 FM. With the indoor self-service laundrette, now at the Junction Supermarket, Vickers Road. Every day, washing and drying, done within an hour. Selfservicelaundry.ie Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Quartz Gold, Imro award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. A lot of questions on a lot of different subjects coming in from Tishuk Mihal Martin. I'll do my best to get to all of them for you, but bear with me. Um, a number of people asking Tishuk about uh, the maternity hospitals. This is something we've been covering since the very beginning. Um, CUMH seems to be a bit of an outlier in terms of how strict the visiting rules are for partners and for birth- birthing partners and for fathers. And um, a lot of women very concerned that they're going to have to give birth alone and possibly look after a baby alone for the first few days of life when they are themselves in, in a difficult situation. Have you had any um, communication from CUMH on that? Because I do understand that hospitals up the country have relaxed restrictions even in Dublin. Yeah, I think this this is an issue that has been raised in the dial uh, by a number of deputies o- over the last number of weeks. Uh, I think we all know that um, you know the birth of, of, of a baby is one of the most magical uh, moments in, in, in your life. Uh, it can also be a difficult and traumatic moment for some um, as well, we know that. And therefore the presence of a partner um, is, is essential in, in, in normal times and it's something that we, 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 we take for granted. I think it's a reminder... Um, of how our lives, the norm in our lives has been upended by this COVID-19. Uh, I think we should accept in the first instance the bona fides of those who bring in protocols and regulations. They're seeking to protect the mother, they're seeking to protect the baby uh, and frontline health workers. I think that is the motivation. That said, uh, there hasn't been a national sort of guidance framework, it would appear, uh, and local um, risk managers and will take different decisions in different hospitals. Now Peter McKenna who, who's the clinical director of the National Maternity and Infants Health Programme is now preparing a national document uh, to be sent out to all maternity uh, centres with a view to having a more uniform national framework governing practice here mm-hmm. uh, and there is a lot of concern about this uh, and obviously different hospitals have different um, situation. The maternity hospital here in Cork is probably one of the more modern uh, facilities relative thing, to others. I was involved more, myself in getting yeah. a sanction when I, when I was Minister for Health and getting the thing over the line with the neonatal there. Um, so uh, I would like to think that obviously with the objective of protecting the health of everyone concerned that mm. we could facilitate particularly for scans for example and so on uh, the presence of a partner uh, in, in, in these situations Yeah, just this morning somebody had asked us about visiting hours at CUH so you can go and visit a patient at CUH for 15 minutes but you can't see your baby except for their, their actual birth you know, it, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to people but hopefully we'll, we'll await that document and hope that it will bring some good news for um, some very anxious uh, families out there expecting babies um, we have also had a number of calls on the Carry Tools School Project. Um, Deputy James O'Connor was on with us last week discussing this and there just seems to have been delay after delay after delay. The school still isn't gone out to tender and it was announced yesterday that St. Al's um, also in Carry Tool is getting an extension. Um, that 
I mean, obviously, the more school places in East Cork, the better. That's that's clearly yeah. a, a bonus for everybody involved. But I think the frustration of the parents at this point in Carrytool, they, they really, nobody at this point can understand what the delay is here. Well, first of all, it has gone on for a long, long time, for a number of years, and there's been a strong campaign there. Um, I know Deputy James O'Connor has been uh, persistent with me and with the Minister for Education, Norma Foley. Uh, I think the plans are going to put out the tender um, in Q1, quarter one of 2021. Uh, and uh, in my view, you know, that will happen and, and we're keeping the pressure on to make sure we can get it out to tender um, as quickly as we possibly can uh, and I know James is you know he has, he has beaten the door already to Norma Foley's office we will continue to do that there is a huge issue there uh, in terms of the growth of numbers and so on and the necessity for this Okay. Um, we also had um, a story in the last couple of weeks, Taoiseach, about <coughs> housing. Obviously, the election campaign, which feels like about a decade ago now, um, largely focused on housing and on the problems in the housing market. That challenge, I suppose, has not gone away. I know there have been um, there has been the eviction ban, there have been mortgage freezes. Those are just kind of lifting a lot of them at the moment, just at the same time that the pop is dropping. Um, only last week, we covered on the show the case of Patrick and Adrian Wall who are living in a derelict bus outside Blarney. Adrian has a serious brain injury and is just not able to tick the boxes that the system requires he tick. Um, they're the thin end of the wedge, but I suppose they're a particularly um, a particularly sad case and a particularly difficult case. Are there any extra resources being put in place to deal with the wave of housing needs that is going to come out of this situation? Yes, there are. As a result of the, the July stimulus, for example, we provided uh, up to 40 million to all local authorities, including Cork City and Cork County, for voids, for example. These are houses that have been emptied through people leaving and needing repairs and so on like that and that will bring quite a number of houses back into operation in Cork City um, over the next number of months uh, and um, in addition to that Cork City uh, you know they deliver about 600 um, uh, social housing units in t- this year uh, that could get up to 800 un- units currently under construction um, with about 31 families in emergency accommodation in Cork City and 299 individuals uh, and so there will be we will double down our efforts to try and help those who are on the homeless side uh, and to get more get them into emergency accommodation but more critically uh, to get more social social housing built there will also be initiatives around affordable housing uh, to make sure that people um, who want to buy a house who you know are working and out there um, but because of of, of, of market conditions are not in the position to do so. We want to give assistance to those who want to buy their houses uh, and there will be additional measures in that regard. Uh, but in terms of the homelessness and in terms of social housing, there will be a ramping up and extra resources will be allocated uh, to build more council houses uh, over the next uh, 12 months and certainly beyond that as well. Okay. Um, is there anything going to be put in place in terms of this, the um, labour activation in that sector? Labour activation might be the wrong term, but at the moment, uh, anybody who's trying to get work done in their house, there's no builders. Um, yeah, who's going to build them? Well, there's a very good scheme we announced again in July in terms of giving incentives to employers to... Um, to take on apprentices and there's been a very good take up of that um, it, it, they'll get a grant if they take on a first year apprentice uh, and that's that's working mm-hmm. uh, and that will increase numbers uh, we also we've provided about 200 million for additional uh, skills training to skill nets springboard um, higher education because that's going to be the big challenge I think as a result of COVID-19 we do need to provide very significant resources to help people reorientate uh, take take retrofitting for example mm. that's going to become a very significant programme 
in years to come. We just announced a scheme for the Midlands with, of 20 million with, with five to six local authorities involved. Uh, Cork has experience in that regard in terms of Holly Hill and, and uh, there's some uh, good, good examples of retrofitting there. Um, and we want to continue that. Uh, and so we, but we will need to train people. Um, in that particular mm. um, area and construction uh, has come back after the lockdown we will lose some productivity this year because of the lockdown itself and COVID nonetheless there's additional capacity now in construction uh, and you know we have glad to announce the, the, the two ophthalmology labs in the South Fermi Victoria Hospital that's a significant project which will help throughput and cataracts and so on like that and really modernise our, our service there in terms of, of ophthalmology uh, but all that needs work and uh, so we're very conscious as we want to increase construction capacity we will need workers to enable us to do that so we do need to allocate quite substantial funding to skills the ETB here in Cork has been very effective in that regard the Educational Mm -hmm. Training Board working with uh, CIT uh, and also UCC uh, in terms of that whole skills uh, further education piece uh, to enable us to meet the new demands of of a changing economy and uh, a post-COVID economy Okay, you mentioned um, the South Infirmary and investment there, and I suppose that brings me to the HSE Winter Plan, which has been just been announced at six hundred million. Um, I gather that announcement of fifteen hundred extra beds. Some of them are already in place. Um, Alan Kelly in the Dáil yesterday said it was just five hundred and twenty-eight when you took out the ones that are already in existence. Um, I know that there were extra beds introduced. For example, there was a field hospital in Limerick which um, was never used during COVID. I don't know if those beds are being counted in in no. that Winter Plan. They're not. Okay. No. Um, in terms of that winter plan, the timing of it and the capacity that is there for it, we had CUH this morning in our news headlines warning people not to come to hospital unless strictly necessary. Um, you know, and it's only September and we yeah. haven't hit flu season yet. Yeah, and, and I think, first of all, last year the winter initiative would have been 30 odd million, you know, mm-hmm. maybe less. Now it's 600 million because we realise with COVID 19 we have probably the biggest challenge we've ever faced. Uh, coming into the winter. But it's not just about hospitals. In fact, there's a strong emphasis in this plan on community and on home. So I'm looking at 4.7 million uh, additional home support hours uh, by the end of April 2021, between now and next April. Uh, We're looking at rehab beds, additional rehab beds nationally, uh, acute beds. um, And when you say, Alan, Kelly just said just five to eight, that's a lot of beds Mm because it's not just about beds, it's about staff and it's about people uh, behind those. And how is the recruitment of those staff going? I mean, that's ongoing and that will be challenging. There's Mm -hmm. no point in saying otherwise. Um, But in terms of the overall uh, figures, the, the funding is now there to enable uh, the HSE to do that uh, and you know we want self-isolation beds p- provided of course so there will be reconfiguration um, within hospitals there's a strong view that uh, lessons learned during the early phase of COVID around for example um, community uh, diagnostics around GP led clinics particularly respiratory clinics mm. do we need to be sending senior citizens into very overcrowded emergency departments with respiratory illness. Can we deal with those situations outside of the acute setting? We believe we can Mm. and that the right setting, uh, well-resourced, can enable us to prevent and, and, and avoid people having to go into very overcrowded situations in emergency departments, waiting there perhaps for 24 hours and longer and two days, uh, where an earlier intervention uh, could be just as effective mm-hmm. out in the community. It has to be properly resourced. And I think that is the way of the future. Uh, and that's what this plan will comprehensively resource more than it did ever before. 
uh, within the health service because it really is the home care packages, uh, the community-based interventions that will take pressure off the acute hospitals and allow the serious trauma um, be dealt with uh, in our emergency department at CUH. So are we looking at maybe a beginning of an end of the bottleneck of A&E? I, I, I look, as a former Minister of Health, I'm loath to say anything of that because I'm kind <laughs> in health. I much prefer... We've provided resources. I took an interest in this myself uh, mm. with Stephen Donnelly to say, look, we've got to really, given the severity of COVID-19 and its impact on hospitals, because it's not just about emergency. And, and a lot of people, when the influenza season gets into full um, uh, rain, basically uh, lots of people will be referring uh, with symptoms that... Yeah people might think are COVID, turn out not to be COVID. Mm. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of pressure at all levels on the health system. Uh, and so therefore we're very conscious of that. And also within hospitals, when COVID is coming back up, they've got to be extra careful, which means it reduces their capacity to deal with non-COVID illnesses. That's a worry and a concern. So all of that is going to add, is going to add pressure. We know from COVID during the lockdown and people didn't go to hospital, didn't refer themselves. There's been a backup in terms of cardiac, in terms of oncology uh, in terms of people you know diagnosis Uh, so we're anxious really to to move on that front uh, because that in itself then creates emergency situations down the line Mm. uh, which creates additional pressure on emergency departments Okay, a couple more questions for you Taoiseach I just have to take this quick break um, back with more particularly in relation to the 2% pay rise a lot of people have been contacting us about that this week so stay tuned for that the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With a solid fuel depot, now located at the Junction Supermarket Vickers Road. Coal, gas, kiln-dried wood and briquettes for collection or delivery. SolidFuelDepot.ie This is Cork's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 On Cork's 96FM. Back with Antishuk Mihal Martin just for a couple of final questions. Antishuk, I understand you have a jobs announcement to go to, so we won't keep you too much longer. Um, a number <coughs> of people contacted us during the week about the 2% public service pay rise, which of course applies to all TDs and ministers as well. I understand the Sinn Féin TDs are declining to take it. Um, is that the position for anybody in your party? No, first of all, um, the 2% rise relates to a broader public service pay increase and for over 20 odd years TDs have been connected to the principal officer grade I absolutely, I actually support that connection mm-hmm. because it takes it away from the hands of TDs in terms of determining their pay on an annual basis that is important I think people will play politics with it on an annual basis that shouldn't be the case uh, you know Sinn Féin did this before in years ago saying that they would take the average industrial wage it subsequently emerged that they didn't and quite a number of them took the full thing uh, I don't believe in engaging in propaganda uh, sort of playing politics with this. The way to deal with wages is taxation. If you're up in Midland and earning high, you should be taxed higher. And that's what we have in this country. That's a more effective way of dealing with it. Uh, and um, and I think, look, Sinn Féin is the wealthiest party in the country. Uh, it has far greater resources than independent TDs have, for example, uh, who have to resource their campaigns differently. But it's your party, um, I'm asking about specifically. Well, I'm, I'm making that point. Mm. I mean, I'm sim- simply saying Sinn Féin are a very wealthy party mm. uh, and, and they can have far more offices and far more staff than any other party. Uh, and so I'm simply saying is that independent of me or my party, I, I believe in the connection with public service grades. Do you I believe think, that I the think, 2% pay rise across the board is sustainable in the pandemic? We as ministers will not be taking it and we as ministers will not be taking the increase and we've already 
um, reduced our pay by 10% um, as ministers. Uh, but I think in terms of TDs on the ground and in aspiring TDs coming into the dial, I actually think it's far better independent of the political system the pay determination system should be independent of the political system and it should be connected to a, to a grade in the public service as it has been for the last 20 plus years uh, I'd be, I've, uh, prior to that everybody was playing politics with it on an annual basis it's no sustainable way to run your political system either Okay, in terms of the 2% pay rise overall for the public service in the current climate yeah. where an awful lot of businesses are, are going to go under, where people are, are experiencing reduced pandemic unemployment payment. And, you know, public servants, obviously, we know that they include, um, you know, medical staff and educational yeah. staff and people on the front line and people who aren't, who obviously work very hard as well. But is it sustainable to be giving anyone a pay rise in the current climate? Has well, that to be looked at? I think, first of all, the government is committed to fulfilling its agreements in relation to public service pay. What the, what the pandemic, in my view, teaches us is the importance of having a very strong, effective and committed public service. Uh, and I think any move not to adhere to agreements would undermine that concept and would undermine morale in the public service. I think our health services and politically frontline workers have been exceptional. Many administrators, many officials have worked well into the night in terms of dealing with the pandemic, that has to be said. Uh, our teachers, for example, on the ground with SNAs, the work they did throughout August to get the schools ready was phenomenal mm. and has to be acknowledged and affirmed. The Gardaí have had a very difficult time uh, out there during, pan during the pandemic from the very beginning. They've been in a, a new situation. It's very difficult it's, you know, in terms of public health regulations and, and, and dealing and, and, and trying to get higher compliance with them. And there's a whole range of others. Um, so in that context, I think what we're doing here by adhering to the public uh, pay agreement is saying, look, we do ac acknowledge the centrality of a good public service to a democracy and to a society uh, to enable us to deal with something as unique and dangerous as a global pandemic. Okay. Uh, in many aspects of our public service has been at its best during this pandemic. We learn lessons from that as well. That's why we're adhering to the public service pay agreement. Okay, on your way in here, Tishuk, you met a number of the Debenhams workers um, outside who wish to speak to you. I think you are going to give them some of your time. Um, but there was a lot of criticism this week of particularly Padraig O'Sullivan and Colin Burke, both government representatives, for standing with Debenhams workers <coughs> last week and this week voting against Deputy Joan Collins' workers' rights bill, which was designed to implement the Duffy Cahill report, a report that was written after a similar thing was done to the Cleary's workers. Why won't the government implement the report? Well, and again, let's be clear, uh, a motion in the Doyle or legislation in the Doyle isn't going to change this situation, despite what people suggest. It, it will not. And I'm not going to leave pe lead people up a hill and back down again in respect of that. Uh, and Partick O'Sullivan is has been genuinely supportive and sympathetic to the workers. The Duffy Cattle report is an important report. It actually wouldn't apply to, to Debenhams because this is a liquidation both here no, and in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, there, are, there are issues uh, and there are aspects of Duffy Cattle which we want to, to move on. We are looking at legislation, for example, um, around collective agreements where workers are part of a collective agreement that in the event of a liquidation that they would be on a par with others uh, in terms of getting proceeds from that liquidation. Mm -hmm. Currently, that is not the case. Now, we will be looking favourably at bringing in that legislation. But that legislation is detailed. You do have to engage with employers. The legislation the other night was going to put the onus on every other employer out there. So then that would allow rogue traders to go into liquidation and others will have to pay for it. And So you can't do that on one night and just make a decision to say we'll go along with that 
and uh, have no regard to the consequences. I think, so on the legislative front, there will be movement around what happened in Clary's as well as this situation. I think the, where this situation applies is there was a, a collective agreement between the workers which, has, which has, suffered, has, has been undermined by the manner of the liquidation and they don't have the same rights as others in terms of getting proceeds mm. from the sale of assets or whatever. There's also leads for legislation to make sure the companies can't separate out their assets from their trading income mm. and, and into separate companies and it's, it's the trading company then that goes into liquidation and workers are left high and dry. That has to be uh, dealt with. Uh, and also uh, you know, there was, there was engagement uh, informal engagement with the liquidator in terms of could funds be released for the workers in Debenhams. Now some funds mm. were released subsequently taken back. It was low. It's not the equivalent of a redundancy yeah. to be fair. Um, and then we're going to see if there are other mechanisms uh, to other funds if something can be done in this situation. But I want to be realistic as well. The government will fulfil its obligations in terms of statutory redundancy uh, which is legislatively provided for the Social Insurance Fund. Government will do its bit. Uh, unfortunately in this situation uh, the workers haven't been treated well in my view uh, by Debenhams. Despite uh, engagement with Debenhams there's nothing for coming there uh, in, or from the British company uh, which is, had been in examinership um, and in, in, in difficulty as well. So it is a very difficult situation for the workers concerned. Okay. Th- those are the three funds we're looking at. Okay, Tishik, thank you very much for your time this morning. Apologies, I think I've made you late for your next engagement. So apologies well, I'm just going for that. to work Vivo, which is a very up and coming Cork company. There will be additional jobs announced there, and I think it's just evidence of the very high quality technology companies, Irish owned companies that are emerging now, in, and I'm looking forward to meeting them shortly. Some good news for a change. Tishik Michal Martin, thank you. thank you very much for your time. I gather there's members of the Carrig Tool parents uh, pressure group outside our, buildings, our building now as well. Um, so, all sorts of people wanting to get the Tishik's attention this morning. If there's anything you want to say about that interview or you want to have a word on air 0833969696 is the number you can text or WhatsApp or you can call the show on 1850 715 996. Now um, snooker, right, I know nothing about snooker so I'm really sorry about this Aaron Hills is the father of Stephen Hill who has been doing very well in the snooker Aaron, tell me what's going on Good morning, good morning. This is, this, this is Stephen. It's, it's oh, Stephen. Apologies. There we are. It's Aaron as the snooker player. You see, this is how bad I am now. Tell me, um, what has he been up to? Well, it's just, first of all, it's just that um, we're, we're so proud to watch and see also on television live and to see him beating the world champion, Ronnie O'Sullivan, and what he's doing for the last couple of years since he picked up a cue was four years ago. It's just unbelievable what Aaron's doing in, in the game all together. And, um, Only four years ago and he's already beaten the world champion. And then he's three times European champion. Oh my gosh. And, um, it's, it's, it's like we're just so proud of it. It's just like the phone, the phone is going out since seven o'clock this morning and uh, we're just so, as I say, going to keep on saying we're proud of it. It's great for Cork and it's great for Ireland it's great for the world. What? to see a young talent like that coming through at 18 years of age. Cheapers, that's amazing. And oh, like, did he own, and he only started playing when he was 14? That's all he started when he was 14 and um, he walked his he walked his way up. He won all the national titles in Ireland and he capped in Ireland and he he he, uh, he defended his, his European title this year in February out in Portugal. He won last year in uh, Israel so he defended it this year and won it and three days later and he won the European 121s as well out there and he was the first no-cup player in the history of the game to do the double. Isn't that just incredible? You must be so proud of him. Oh, very proud. He's just a beautiful, emotionally proud of 
And I gather Ronnie O'Sullivan was his idol for years. Oh, he looked up to Ronnie all the time and anytime he's talking about Alan, he always gives Alan the, he gives Ronnie his full title, Mr. Ronnie O'Sullivan and um, he's he just, uh, just unbelievable to see what he's doing. God, that's incredible. And um, had you played yourself or where did he pick it up? I, I played 30, I played 40 years ago myself, but uh, I used to fight with Miss Handy and Alan is like Alan's totally different breed altogether. That, that's a gift you can't teach what he has. It's just a gift and we're blessed with that. And um, no, any, any, any sport he put his hand he was just excellent. He was excellent. It's that um, Years ago, he was playing in uh, for, for Temple United in Cork, and uh, he got trials with Cork team, and he just came down to the last few players, and he wasn't picked, and we were all we were all uh, down over it. He should have got on the Cork team, and then um, so I, I, for me to cheer him up, I said, "Come on, away down, I bring it down for games, no Cork," and we never looked back. Oh my gosh, isn't that amazing? And will this be? Will he like? Will he be able to do this as a full time career? Oh, this is a full time career. I know he's a he's a, a full time professional now, and then. Um, Thank God, he's, thank God he's off a magnificent, magnificent staff, staff already now. So he's he's gaining ranking points all the time you now as we go on. So he's on again today. Now I have it too. And who's to say he's not going to go on all the, go all the way and win it? But it's just his dream come true. And then um, it's all about ranking points now and staying on the top. But he's only after stopping. He's two year pro held. So um, he's two years now to get to the top 64 in the world. And if he does that, it'd be brilliant. God, that's amazing. And like snooker must be a great one in terms of like, you look at all the other, is it, is it a, like, would you call it a sport? It's a sport, isn't it? Art is a sport, all right. Jesus, snooker is an unbelievable game. It's a pity that um, they're not more young, so get involved in this and then taking it up. And because instead like, of their, instead of being on their phones more than only yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what what occurs to me is that it, obviously, like if he was going into professional football or if he was going into boxing or something else, you'd be looking at maybe a ten or fifteen year career. But for something like snooker, should there's no retirement age? Oh yeah, he could. I suppose he could be if he if he if he, if he, if he, if he, if he could play away into his fifties. Yeah, that's incredible. You know. And do you have to do physical training first? Because I often hear um, golfers talking about having to, you know, do X and Y training, and I'm like, sure, they're only going for a walk. But with snooker, is there is there kind of physical requirements for it? Well, the well, there is. Well, Alan always keeps Alan keeps himself fit all the time. Yeah. You're breaking up a bit on me there, Stephen. Hello. Sorry. Yeah, we are phone. I'd say he's so he keeps himself fit. You're saying. We're gone, I'd say, on that line, guys. We might try and get Stephen back in a minute, but that's a, like that's fascinating. Sorry, no, I actually there was nothing here except a name for me. I didn't know what he was. Uh, I didn't know what he was coming out about. So apologies for that. But that's a fascinating thing. Eighteen, and he's already beaten his boyhood idol in snooker. Should the only way is up for that, isn't it? What um what kind of a career is Aaron Hill's going to have? And great for Cork to have somebody in the spotlight on that. I suppose he'll be the Roy Keane of snooker. We might try and get Stephen back on that line, guys, in a minute. Listening to highlights from the opinion line on Corks 96 FM. To hear the full show, download the podcast from iTunes or see 96fm.ie. The opinion line with PJ Coogan on Corks 96 FM. (laughs) 
and if you're just tuning in, it's Deirdre here in for PJ on this Friday's Opinion Line. Lots coming up for you on the show. Uh, mostly, um, some of it is going to be related to snooker, which I am now going to have a lesson in because I don't know anything about it. Uh, we've brought, called in the big guns and we've called in the professionals and Trevor Welsh is on the line to explain why this is such a big deal to me. Trevor, I know nothing about snooker. This obviously, though, is a very, very big deal. Why is it such a big deal? Yeah, hi, Deirdre. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, um, Aaron Hill, I, I heard a lot about him, actually, over the last couple of years uh, to watch out for him. And, uh, you know, he's proven out why uh, he's going to be a big name in the game, actually, because um, this win against uh, six-time world champion Ronnie O'Sullivan, I heard you talking about a while ago, O'Sullivan's his idol. But, uh, you know, to beat him just six weeks after he won the world title, going forward for his confidence, that's going to be huge for his confidence going forward, you know. Um, it's a very competitive world, obviously, a snooker, and uh, it's only the elite will come true. But Aaron Hill is a name that uh, you're going to hear a lot about. Um, you know, he didn't uh, just turn up to be happy to be there to play his idol. He wanted to win. And he had to show a lot of character as well there because mm. he was 3-1 up in the match and then he fell 4-3 behind. And to get a break of 78 in the deciding frame showed his metal and, uh, you know, his character. Uh, he's a confident lad. And, um, you know, this is going to be huge from going forward. He's a, From what I'm getting from this, Trevor, is basically he's going to be the Roy Keane of snooker. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it because... Um, um, you know he's he's achieved great things already, um, winning, winning European titles, and you know he's in he's in the next round now as well. And uh, I'm sure he's just um, practicing away as we speak. I know he's he's probably difficult to get at today because um, I did speak to Derry Kiley, who's the general secretary of Irish Snooker, Cork man from Yall, and um, he did give me the number last night. But he said you know he'll be practicing mad this morning, and I'd say he's inundated with requests to do various things. I'd say mm. uh, as he said himself, if he had to get back to everybody, he'd be there to. Christmas, but um, <laughs> but uh, you know he's probably practicing way getting ready for the next round. But um, you know, and when will that be? Um, I'm not sure. I, it's probably probably uh, tomorrow or the day after. I think, okay. but um, I'm not 100 percent sure. But he's um, you know he he get huge confidence in that, and uh, there's no reason why he can't go on and win another few matches. Brilliant. Well, do you know what? It's great even for people like me who aren't um, necessarily too informed about things. It's great to have an Irish person to follow in these kind of things and to watch that success because these days we all kind of need a bit of good news, don't we? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, Cork is a hotbed right now for, for snooker. Like, I I was um, I was listening to Ken Darty there. You know, he was uh, obviously a former yeah. uh, world champion, Dubliner Ken Darty. And, he did um, a documentary a number of years back now, but he spoke to a lot of young Yaw lads coming through. I remember he, did, he was in Yaw and he spoke about the, the talent pool coming through, uh, even though Ronnie O'Sullivan <laughs> uh, was made to eat his words because on the way to winning the world title, he was saying that it's, it's only the old boys are still producing the goods. There's no young talent coming oh, through. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. yeah wow. There's no one coming through. And I heard a soundbite from Aaron saying, well, uh, I answered that today. Sure did. And did. Wow. And his dad, Stephen, is back on the line with us now. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me back again. Not at all, not at all. Stephen, so Aaron Aaron made Ronnie O'Sullivan eat his words about the lack of young talent. Wow. He did, he did. If you to the interview after the game, he, he was just magnificent and cool out, Alan. It's just, he's just, you know, he says, I'm after putting him back in his box now. And, uh, you know, <laughs> 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 so, fair play to him. And in terms then of all the, the tournaments and the travel for those, um, are they heavily restricted now because of COVID? Like, are you able to be over there with him? We can't go over now, but it's on in Milton Keynes now. Just nine tournaments between now and Christmas held in Milton Keynes. So mm. um, this is the second tournament now, so there's seven more left after this. So um, once he keeps on winning, he'll, he'll, be, he'll, he'll stay there, but if he loses, he'll come back the following day, then he's here then for a okay. week and a half, then he's back over again then. But 
every time they go over they're, they're tested for the COVID and um, yeah so it's so all a bit strange it must be a bit hard for you having to watch it on telly as opposed to being able to be there with him it's, it's, it's great to see him once he's keep on winning it is brilliant but um, yeah, I just miss missing the other one the whole family missing just giving a big hug and a kiss and stuff you know oh yeah, yeah. That's, he's can, only can I just ask Stephen the question there, can, of course there. Uh, Stephen, do you know when his next matches or his next opponent? Yeah, he's, he's Matthew Stevens today. I have this too. Wow, another another big gun. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know if he's live. I don't know if he's live or not. No, so we won't know. I know till um, later on. But um, that's another have... big test. But I was saying to Deirdre that the win against Ronnie will give him huge confidence. And um, you know, as he said himself, he didn't go go there just to be happy to be there. Did he get to talk to Ronnie afterwards? Do you know, Stephen. That, no, that, no, I, I don't know. I, I was only talking there last night because he was in bed. I know I'm on, but I'm not sure he's up now, but I'm, I, I catch up and I know more. Brilliant. Well, we'll watch out for that. Yeah. So, half two today, Matthew Stevens, Trevor, and uh, it's Trevor. Thanks, Trevor, to the rescue. <laughs> thanks no, for that. No Trevor. problem there. And yeah. uh, thanks, Stephen Hill, and congratulations to Aaron and to all the family. You must be so proud of him, and it's great to see a Cork a young fellow doing so well um, internationally. Really is just great. Positive news story for the day that's in it. I'm getting an awful slagging here over my uh, my sporting knowledge. Frank says, uh, uh, hang on, the Cork Coip who says, dear, to just congratulated Aaron on scoring three touchdowns and a goal. <laughs> and um, Frank says he hopes the Irish Examiner has a sports editor, and I'm not going to be in charge of that in my new job. But no, you're right, Frank. It has a very, a very, very experienced and professional sports editor in Tony Lean so there is no fear uh, someone else says um, he can hear PJ laughing at the radio from home uh, he would have loved the interview uh, yeah no he would PJ would have loved this because he loves snooker he's a huge snooker fan I was actually saying this morning I was saying that would have been one for him now um, but I believe he's um, he's homewares shopping today so he's probably where we should probably have swapped places for the day I could have gone shopping for new kitchen sinks with his wife and he could have been doing the snooker interview but anyhow that's alright that's the way it goes um, but it's great to have some good news all the same you know what I'll take it no matter what it is um, we'll take anybody doing well and uh, having success um, and no, ma- no matter whether I understand it or not it's still a positive story um, speaking of which um the Douglas uh, shopping centre and the fire and all of the delays with getting that back up and running and now a pandemic I mean that shopping centre first a flood then a fire now a pandemic and the girls a couple of the girls who had businesses in that shopping centre have been running a fire sale in Douglas Woolen Mills over the last few days I'm going to talk to them in just a few minutes just about I suppose bringing some kind of um, phoenix from the ashes of of really what was uh, their business was completely destroyed but they are back up and running to some extent there is some something happening there and there is some positivity there and I'll also be talking to Owen who opened new business in the city centre over the last while and uh, is still you know still open has worked through the pandemic and is keeping things going so stay tuned for that on Corks 96 FM with the indoor self-service laundrette now at the Junction Supermarket Vickers Road every day washing and drying done within an hour self-service laundry.ie this is Corks Gold Imro Award winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now, 1850 715 Now we're talking about success and about kind of uh, making it and overcoming the odds. And somebody who is, is, I think, at the moment, overcoming the odds of some very, very difficult times is Vicky Kraber from It's O Me Boutique in Douglas. Good morning, Vicky. 
Hello, Vicky. Hello, can you hear me? How are you? I can indeed. I'm good. How are things going for you? Good, very good. Um, so, as you know, we set up a pop-up shop two weeks ago in the Woolamills in Douglas, and it was our first kind of venture back after being closed for over 12 months. And the support has been, I must just say to everyone, thank you so much for the support because it has been incredible. Are people afraid to come into a shop at the moment or have people been able to come out and, and kind of just do the normal thing? People are very much, they're delighted to come out and I suppose see a local kind of friendly face. That's what I would say, that they want to kind of stay within their community and shop within their community. Mm. So they're more than happy to come out and come into a safe shopping environment like ours and like both myself and I teamed up with Rita from Pure. Um, so two boutiques came together and we've opened our pop-up shop. And I suppose the reality is we would have been trading in Douglas for between us 25 years. So we're meeting customers that we know and it's good for customers to see that friendly face. Yeah, and of course a lot of them won't have seen you since you shut up. They haven't, last no, year. no. So we've a lot of catching up to do. Yeah. How long now have you both been closed for? We've been closed for it's going on 13 months on the 31st so the fire happened on the 31st of August 2019 so we got up and running there Friday this day two weeks ago It must and have been, been a bit surreal being back was it? Very surreal very very surreal and we had been looking for premises to get opened before now but it didn't it proved very difficult and we are very very grateful to Anne Murphy and the Woolmills who came to our rescue and helped us out with the premises that we were able to stay in Douglas because that was very mm. important to us mm, Absolutely. wanted to stay in Douglas and, and be there with our customers so that they could have easy access to us and that was very important. Vicky, you've been through more than the average business person. Um, yeah. This is your kind of third big disaster. I suppose. The pandemic is a disaster for everyone. Yeah. It's not specific to you, but the other two kind of were. Yeah. Um, what would you say to, to businesses that are that are maybe kind of fairly recently opened and are now dealing with pandemic and maybe looking at level three restrictions in the next while? Like, What's your advice to them in, in terms of trying to move forward with things? It's very difficult. I mean, we, we were flooded, completely destroyed in 2012. We had the fire in 19 with the pandemic this year. And as a business owner, it's incredibly difficult. But you do get that fight in you and you get that resilience in you and you need to keep going. And more than anything else, and I'm not just saying it, it's the support network around you that helps you get through it. Mm. I mean, it's your customer base. It's And that's what's so important for everyone now listening. I mean... Now more than ever, we need to shop local. We need to spend our money in our local businesses because if we don't, they won't exist. And I mean, especially in the next couple of months coming up to Christmas, every penny that everyone is spending, they need to stop and think, where is this money going towards? I mean, when you when you run a local business, you employ local people, the money goes back into the economy. You know, it's not rocket science. We know what has to be done. And the reality is we need to do it now and step up to the mark and support all our local businesses. And when, Vicky, do you think will yourself and Rita and the other businesses that were affected by the fire be able to get back to, and I hesitate to use the word normal because I don't think any of us know what that is anymore. No, and that's the reality, Dee. None of us know what normal is anymore. You just have to keep going and you have to be hopeful for the future because if you don't have hope, you don't have anything. So you have to stay positive the whole the whole time and we just have to keep going and we have to get people out there living 
as much of a life as they can at the moment, whether it means, you know, simple things like if you want to get your hair blow dried, go get your hair blow dried. If you want to buy a top, go. Like life can't stop at the moment. Mm. It has to keep going because if it stops, all businesses will stop. You know, go try and go for that meal. Try and support the local business. You know, you have to you have to continue in some bit of, you know, a normal, the new norm, as we call it. Yeah, That's yeah. really important. And as for the shopping centre, is it going to be is it going to be back up and running at some point in the next, I don't know, yeah, year? They're, yeah, they're working on it at the moment. They have a timeline at the moment towards November, so it's full steam ahead. So, so we could see it there for positive. Christmas. You could too, yeah. But wouldn't that you be something? Do. Let's yeah, hope so. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to say, Dee, Thank you so much for the support down through all the years. And I know today's your last show and I know that your your next chapter is going to be amazing. And thank oh. you so much for all the support. It's very much appreciated. Thank you very much. Thanks, Vicky, for that. I appreciate that. And uh, best of luck with the, with the rest of the fire sale. Thank you. Thank you. They do have some lovely stuff, if I say so myself. Um, and thanks for that. Uh, Owen Murphy is from Red Church, new menswear store, which opened in the city centre in December. Owen, you were, you were open in time for Christmas which must have been great but I'm, I don't think anybody was expecting what happened after that uh, Yeah, yeah, good morning um, Yeah, I opened on the 8th of December there so uh, I suppose all things were going well there uh, you know, I was kind of just uh, up and running for Christmas and January and February February was good and so forth like, and I suppose then bang, bang all of a sudden like uh, Covid hit um, so like I'm very much involved in um, wedding suits and suits um, so like uh, this thing I suppose um, 70% of the market is kind of asleep at the moment you know mm. um, and that's a like large percentage is, yeah there is yeah but like I suppose just like um, what the lady said just before there um, like people are very good and they do support you. Um, like I suppose at the moment, uh, I'm trying to pivot as much as I can. You know, I'm doing kind of casual wear now at the moment because I suppose everyone is at home, you know, wearing runners and T-shirts and, uh, you know, suits at the moment. A lot of lads are still working from home, you know. So I suppose you've got to change, um, you know, your business model, you know, as much as you can. Yeah. Um, like I suppose there was in, you know, January and February there. I'd sell 10 ties a day. Now I'm selling 15 face masks, you know, wow. a day. Like So it's just, you know, it's just changing. But, like, I suppose the people themselves, you know, are very, very good. Like, uh, I have men coming in to me there every week and um, they'll come in and they'll buy something. They'll buy something small, like, but they don't necessarily need it, you know. Um, they're just, you know, they come in for the chat and uh, I suppose they're just supporting you, you know, and... Um, I suppose, you know, you appreciate people people like that in times like this, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what Vicky said, I think about, um, you know, people's small businesses being a part of your daily community and the, that kind of normality of life. I think that was very clear to people during the lockdown when uh, certainly for me, um, we were lucky we were still coming to work, um, which was a level of normality that most people didn't get. Um, but I missed the coffee shop around the corner where I go every morning. I go to one of the two near us and they were closed. And I was like, God, that's actually a really intrinsic part of my day. And it's those kind of things that if, if we don't, if we're not careful, those won't be there when, when things do come back to whatever normal is. Oh, totally. Like, uh, let's say I'm on Robert Street there now, and uh, 
I'm next to uh, the Bro Bar, uh, Amari, uh, and Perry Street Cafe there. Yeah. Um, like, and, you know, all the shops around, are they're all supporting each other. They're all trying to put stuff up on Instagram about the different shops. And uh, I suppose they're trying to help help each other as much as possible, you know. Yeah. And that's, that's really important. Owen, best of luck with the business and I hope that uh, you get good support coming up to Christmas. Um, I, it doesn't, like, every man need a new jumper from their wife for Christmas. <laughs> Isn't that what we buy them? <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah, 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 totally. And yeah, I suppose, yeah, just support local, I suppose, yeah. as much as we can, like, yeah. Best of luck with it. Thanks very much. And I think if uh, if there's any businesses out there needing like resilience training or anything, I'd say Vicky should be the one you go to. She's She's been through all of it and she's still oh, standing. She <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks fair, a million. Fair play, Owen Murphy from Red Church. So, like, that's the thing, you know. They, imagine being through a flood and a fire and a pandemic now, and still just focusing your eyes on the prize and getting open again and getting things back up and running. It's just a huge lesson in fortitude and resilience and just keeping things going. Um, that maybe some of us who are kind of employed by somebody else who pays our wages maybe don't understand as much. Um, hats off to all the business people who are keeping everything going. Um, in the time that we're in uh, like I said getting loads of slagging about my knowledge of snooker here on the texts and on the tweets um, and as Vicky alluded to today is my last day presenting the show um, I'll still be here in the background for a couple of weeks but um, today's my last day presenting the show so I just want to say thanks to all of you who have rang in and texted in and um, contacted us over the years you've made it very unforgettable and great fun and um, uh, unforgettable really is the only word I can use for it it's been a great experience um, and to PJ particularly and Fergal and the rest of the team here it's been an honour and a privilege to work here with everybody and that's all I'm going to say about that uh, coming up after the break I'll be talking to Erin Darcy who has published a new book called In Her Shoes Women of the Eighth based on the Facebook page of the same thing which um, of the same name rather which uh, ran in the run up to the referendum on abortion to highlight women's stories and experiences in the first person and to give people an idea of the restrictions and the heartache that the Eighth Amendment had caused. Uh, stay tuned, I'll be talking to Aaron in just a moment. But good morning, Aaron. Good morning, how are you doing? Uh, I'm not too bad at all. I did not pick that song, but I think it was uh, it was ideal for the discussion we're about <laughs> I, to have. I only just now thought about that now. <laughs> yeah. It happens that way sometimes. The earlier we had Hall Martin and Coldplay Rule the World came on, so um, right. somebody somewhere <laughs> is really thinking about our, our, our topics yeah. today. Um, Aaron, tell me, this, this book is based on a project that you ran on Facebook, the In Her Shoes Women of the Eighth um, page, I think a lot of people will have seen it come into their timeline in the run-up to the referendum on the Eighth Amendment. Can you tell me, looking back at that time in, I think it was 2018 that it began, why did you start the project? Well, I initially started the project because I didn't have a vote for myself uh, for in a referendum and I really, really wanted to... Um, uh, make an undecided voter um, think about it and maybe I just wanted one person to be my vote and I felt like I had to do anything I could to just secure my vote for myself and for my daughter's futures. Um, but then as I got started on, on it, it obviously became more of a project of, um, you know, women were, were ready, so ready to tell their stories, eager to tell their stories and people were really, really wanting to listen. Um, and so then it started to become a thing of these stories were so powerful and moving and I couldn't not bring them further and have people listening to them. Um, 
I know that Irish people are really, really um, compassionate and lovely and, and changing that dynamic of what a person looks like, that ha- you know, changing the idea of what we're sold, mm-hmm. of who has an abortion and letting them kind of realize this is actually happening all around us and these are, these are people that we love and care for. And, and I knew that if Irish people were to hear that, um, they would change their minds and they would want that care here for, for people that they, that they love and know um, to, be, to be at home. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, so so uh, you know, it's it starting to recognize that um, changing the conversation and and realizing that we could actually begin a conversation about something that's so taboo, um, it made it an easier way for people to to talk about something that they were never talking about before. You yeah. know, to say I don't know, you know, to talk about with your parents to say or your granny to say, um, oh, did you he- hear that story last night? Did you see that? Um, how do you feel about it? And for for them to start unveiling all of their stories that they didn't didn't recognize um, had an impact with the Eighth Amendment. Yeah, and actually, what what I thought um, I remember at the time seeing this come up and working on this story, of course, ourselves here on the show and um, in radio. Obviously, people need to be identified, or they need to, you know, we need to hear their voice. And there has been a conversation around that since, particularly the two referenda, where the media kind of you, you, we ask people for their stories all the time, and some people are very willing to do that and they want to do it, and other people kind of you're almost imposing. Um, that on them that they have to be part of a campaign when really right. it's, it's a private pain for you I suppose because of the nature of your project it, you were able to do it anonymously and that probably gave people an awful lot of freedom to really say how, say what happened to them and, and share that Right. Well, so because it was anonymous, it, it gave them that safety to know I can I can let this out, um, but also for readers. Um, and the, the anonymity meant that it could actually belong to somebody that it sounded familiar to them. Like mm. maybe this sounds like somebody who, uh, oh, maybe they mentioned the town name or something that sounded similar that they could go, oh God, I think I think I actually maybe know that person um, and kind of give them that different perspective. And like that was also part of the anonymity. I also matched the stories with a pair of shoes and that pair of shoes could have belonged to the person who sent the story in or it might have been something that I had taken a picture of myself mm which also created the atmosphere that, you know, uh, something so intimate and personal like our article of clothing or, or something that kind of tells you what you think automatically about that person by when you see their clothes or something, uh, we kind of already create a picture of who they are. And then the story, you know, we have an idea of who has an abortion mm. um, and what kind of girl she is or she might be irresponsible or, or what kind of abortions we think are acceptable but when we start to look at, when we start to pair this picture of like maybe a pair of red stilettos and actually the, the story is about a mother um, who has three kids and, and can't continue to have, can't for whatever reason have another baby. Mm. Um, to kind of just change that dynamic with people. And, um, and I think it really worked really effectively. Um, but also the anonymity, I had, there were so many people who, who wrote in saying that they were so, felt so relieved to finally be able to tell that story Um, and that they maybe hadn't told anybody else their stories um, and, and being able to safely do it because at the time, you know, it was criminalized um, and the stories, some of the stories were illegal. Um, You know, obtaining pills in Ireland is, it was illegal and up to an offense of 14 years uh, life in prison. Mm. 
Um, so it, was, so it was a huge thing for people to share that. In terms then of the referendum, Erin, um, the research shows that 43% of voters said it was stories and, um, you know, story personal stories that influenced their decision to vote, yes. So do you feel like your, your project had a real impact on that? Oh, I absolutely think that it had a massive impact. And not only did we have the stories on the, the Facebook page, but we had a, a grassroots uh, kind of distribution of, of printing some of the stories in a, in a small 12-page booklet. So that way we could reach people who weren't on social media, and especially rural Ireland. Um, I don't think that there was any person who could read those stories and not be moved by them. Mm. Um, you know, Ireland is such a rich culture of storytelling and, um, and it was just, I had so many people who would message saying I was a no voter. I was really, really, I really wasn't sure about this, but actually reading some of these stories, um, I can't not, I can't believe that this is actually happening and yeah. I didn't know this was happening. So I, the stories were so important. Now, there's a part of it that's like, well, we shouldn't have had to tell our stories in order to gain our integral rights to our own bodies and our healthcare decisions. But there was more to that because it was healing as a society, as ourselves, to tell those stories and to be held in community with that. Um, and it's still so important right now, you know, not just abortion stories, but all these stories that are so taboo that are coming out now that people are talking about what has happened to them. Um, in all areas, mm, mm. you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. Erin, well done on the book. I think a lot of people will, will um, go out and get that as a memento and as a re- kind of a, a remarkable moment in time uh, for so many Irish women and for so many Irish people. And uh, well done on it. I look forward to reading it. Thank Thanks you very much, Erin Darcy, for that. Um, it's uh, Yeah, and there's actually, there is a project ongoing at the moment called In Our Shoes. Um, and I'm, it's Women In Our Shoes COVID Pregnancy, which is documenting the experience and the fears of women who are pregnant at the moment um, or have recently had babies in this pandemic um, who have had their babies alone and it's um, it's actually very distressing reading and uh, I did ask the about that earlier and hopefully the new documentation that, that comes out from the HSE will provide some comfort to women in Cork particularly because as the Taoiseach said CUMH is actually probably the most modern maternity hospital in the country but it has the strictest restrictions and I know those are done with good intentions to keep people safe but you would have to wonder do they need to be quite as strict as they are Coming up after the break I'll be speaking to another author, um, Dirny Grafa is a Cork poet who has just written her first book, it's called A Ghost in the Throat and it's quite remarkable I've never read anything like it before and I'm a very avid reader, I read a lot of novels, this is something something in between a memoir and a, a, a kind of a personal quest and a history book and um would say it's almost almost poetry in many places. Um, it's it's about Darren's own experience of being a mother and about her her obsession with the Queen of Artie Lyra, which a lot of people will have studied in school. The um, lament for the death of Artie Lyra, who was one of the O'Learys of um, of Mid Cork, which people people listening down in that area will will know all about. But I didn't um, reading the book, and it's a it's a really really unusual read. I'll talk to Darren about that in just a moment. So stay tuned. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With a solid fuel depot, now located at the Junction Supermarket Vickers Road. Coal, gas, kiln-dried wood and briquettes for collection or delivery. Solidfueldepot.ie This is Cork's 
Gold, Imro award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Text or WhatsApp now. 083-396-9696. On Quartz 96 FM. It's rare to see a book written by a Cork author with such like overwhelmingly positive quotes on the jacket and reviews and everything. I think this book is probably going to win loads of awards, but I don't even know what category of an award it would go into. Dearie Griff, um, can you tell me what category this book goes into? Is it a memoir? Uh, well, actually, I was laughing there to you when I was listening to the ads and there was one that mentioned Balancholic Shopping Centre because... So much of this book was written on the roof of Ballancolic Shopping Centre. I used to just drive up there when my youngest was in play school and um, just write and write and write. So I think to answer your question, the category to be in is best book written on the rooftop of Ballancolic Shopping Centre. <laughs> and I would imagine it's probably the only book in that category, but it, it should oh, yeah, win. <laughs> around there while I was there anyway. There's so much of it that is very familiar to anybody with small kids. Um, I have to say that image of driving around trying to get them to sleep or you're holding one, feeding them and the other one is hanging off you. But you you have four kids and this book was written um, when I think the third one, from when the third one was a baby right through to, to having the fourth. Yeah, yeah. It was a really busy time in my life and I mean that would be familiar to a lot of people. I mean it was particularly hectic for me because I had four kids under six at one stage. But I really think for anyone at that stage of having a small baby, you kind of, you know, that strange feeling where you're sleep deprived, you're doing your best, but you're really exhausted and you have so many other things going on in your life, so, so many other stresses. But sometimes kind of an anchor, I suppose, can make itself clear to you. And for every single person, that seems to be something else. And for me... For whatever weird reason, the anchor that made itself clear to me when I was that exhausted was this really old poem, Queen Arthur Lyra. And I just kept reading it and reading it. And I think it was something about the fact that no matter how um, wild and strange everything was in my ordinary life, the poem was always the same when I came back to it. And that became such a comfort to me, Dee, you know. And the more I read the poem and the more I came back to it as a comfort, the more nosy I suppose I became about the woman who had composed this poem that over two centuries before I ever came to it and that's what the book was about it's kind of an adventure story of an ordinary person me a mother of small children and what happens when you go out in search of someone who lived that long before you and how it changes who you are as a person and what I found so interesting about the, the Queen and your search for the woman who wrote it, and you can tell me a bit about her in a minute, was that obviously we know at this point in time, and following our discussion there with Erin Darcy, women were written out of history in so many ways that finding them is finding fragments. And you're constantly looking for, in this book, you're constantly looking for another fragment of this woman who wrote the book, wrote the, the poem. Um, I mean, her name isn't in it. Her her name is there as the author, but Artie Lear is the subject of the poem. She's just the person who wrote it and throughout the teaching of it um, all along people I suppose have learned all about him but we don't know mm. that much about her. Um, tell us a bit about her because she's she's like, so I kind of get the sense that she's almost like your um, uh, what was that expression John O'Donoghue the poet had your Anam Cara at this stage. Yeah, yeah, like Anam Cara I wonder even what English would you put on that a friend of the soul I suppose yeah and that I chose the title of the book very carefully, A Ghost in the Throat, because that doesn't feel like in any way 
an obstruction to me. It felt like she came to haunt my body in some way, but it was in um, kind of like more closer to companionship or friendship like that, like Anam Kari, you know, and she just led such a fascinating life. I mean, she grew up in Derry Nan in, in a household that would have been considered nobility, but at the time where she was born, she was born into the penal laws. So things had really changed for her um, strata of Irish life, say. Um, and there would have been these huge ships coming and going from Darinan Bay, which was, um, a lot of it was smuggling, which would have been orchestrated by her parents, and her mother was an extraordinary person as well. And I mean, Eileen Dove was married off in an arranged marriage to an old man at the age of 14, like pre-junior cert, you know, mm-hmm. and off she goes. Um, and it was just fascinating for me to, to study her life up to the point where she meets Art, falls in love with him, this Oh my God! And it really comes across in the poem. What I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on the radio, actually. But what a ride! Like what a <laughs> lovely, handsome man. I see that. I just keep going there now. Um, but there's, I mean, there's an amazing part which I'll read if that's okay from from my translation of her poem, where it really comes across um, how when she married Arthur, she was very aware still of how handsome he was, and she used to notice other women looking at him. Yeah. So she says. When you strolled those fine city avenues, merchants' wives always stooped their curtsies low for you. How well they could see what a hearty bedmate you'd be, what a man (laughs) to share a saddle with, what a man to spark a child with. So, I mean, he really was something else, you know. And when she saw him in McCroom that first day, she just fell madly in love with him. This was after her first husband had died. Um, and she eloped with them and they had some really beautiful years together in Raleigh outside McCroom. And then unfortunately, I mean, Art was murdered and that was um, in some ways the beginning of the Queen because it was when his horse came home without a rider. She jumped in the saddle, Eileen Dove, and was carried to where his body had been thrown on the ground out near Carriganima. And um, she spoke this poem over his body. And this poem is such a powerful work of literature mm. that it's made its way to us. I mean, I find that miraculous still yeah. to consider a poem spoken by a woman so long ago. The fact that it can be that strong, that it can make its way to us and that we still have it, you know, yeah. to learn. And that it was kept there through that verbal tradition for so long that other women repeated it in, in through the generations. I think, Darren, the thing about, um, well, going back to art, like I, I have to say reading it, I got this impression of him as the guy that you would totally warn your friend off. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. he's, he's, he was uh, he was standing on barrels rolling down the main street of McCroom wearing finery at the time of the penal laws when Catholics weren't even allowed to have ha- wear that finery like he, he, not to be victim blaming now but he was kind of asking for it oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he was definitely a scoundrel a rascal oh my god yeah man about town yeah. always up to mischief Oh, look at those kind of boys. They're kind of irresistible, aren't they? They are. And I mean, Billie Eilish has 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 the perfect song for them. They're like, they're they're also something that's really universal. They're in every every group, in every town, yeah. in every society. Yeah, yeah and I think never change. They don't. And that kind of attraction that they had, it's so visceral in the book. And you write so movingly about, um, I suppose, about their, that, um, I suppose, that relationship that they have and that really 
like sexual attraction that they have yeah. and about your own life as a young mother and I think a lot of women listening particularly and well and probably um, women's partners or husbands listening as well will be aware that that time in, in women's lives when they've just had their children is a really difficult time for uh, I suppose a woman's sexual identity as well and mm. that is not something that is written about very often. No, but that felt important to me to acknowledge that in the book. You know, when I was write, trying to write so openly about Eileen Dove and her relationship within her marriage with Art, I felt like, OK, and I'm including my own little adventure story trying to find out more about Eileen Dove. I need to also be generous about telling the story of my own life as it's occurring side by side with my discovery of her life. So that involves really trying to be generous with the reader and being open with the reader and inviting them into my life. And I mean, that means for me, acknowledging things, I suppose for a woman of my age, like, I mean, that's very much the story of the body, you know, mm. my body's a female body that's giving birth and, you know, that that involves my intimate relationship with my husband sometimes as well. And it just felt important to acknowledge that. It's not something that we talk about, I suppose, that much openly, but it is just so ordinary and humdrum and it's just mm. part of our lives, you know. I mean, it's funny because I write about it and we say, oh my gosh, this is unusual that you're being so open. But then, like, I so often would sit down, not these days with coronavirus, but would sit down next to another woman at, at a bus stop, a stranger, and you end up just chatting yep. about things. And yep. you end up talking about birth stories. You end up talking about, you know, how hard that is to maintain a relationship sometimes after a baby's born and how you find your own ways around mm -hmm. it. And that's, I have learned so much from other women from just sitting down like that and chatting. And, those and how generous chats. they always are when you have a chat. And and how much heart you draw from that, Dee. For me yeah. anyways, you know, just the sense of solidarity and like, you know, women are always watching out for each other, I think. Um, that's how I have felt anyway. Mm -hmm. and, and I've learned a lot from those kind of conversations. So that's part of the conversation I wanted to have with the reader of this book, you know, and to be open about that absolutely Darren. and uh, do you know what it's it's an absolutely beautiful read congratulations like it's, a, it's a wonderful piece of work and um, I like I said I couldn't categorise it I was trying to explain it to somebody the other day and I actually couldn't I said you just have to read it and that's what I would say to anybody listening as well who's curious you, ju you just have to read it Darren Ugrifa author of A Ghost in the Throat thank you for joining me on the show this morning I'm going to have to take a quick break here I'm hoping before uh, before we finish up today to talk to Tig Hickey I don't know if I'll have time we'll see after this break this is Court's Gold Imro Award-winning talk show. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Court's 96FM. A lot of people will be familiar with Tyg Hickey from the uh, Cork comedy troupe Cahoots. He's the creative director of Cahoots, but he has a one-man show which is uh, going to play in the Everyman in October. I think it's already about half sold out, so you'd want to get your skates on if you want to get tickets for it. It's called In One Eye, Out the Other, and it's one man's journey with uh, alcoholism. A lot of it is based on Tyg's own personal experience, and I had hoped to have a more um, uh, a more a longer chat with Tyg on this. But Tyg, we have about a minute, which isn't really long enough to get to get your full life story. No worries, and I just just to say, this minute won't be as raunchy as your as your call with Dern. I wish no, well, that like, off. if it was going to be sex, drugs, and rock and roll, I was going for the sex in this in this show. You know, um, Tyg, the show is on in October. It got rave reviews when it played in Dublin, and I think it was to go to Edinburgh. But you haven't had the chance, obviously, to do that with everything that's happened this year. Um, sure. If it runs for those two dates in, in the Everyman and it's sold out, can we expect it to come back again? 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, we're going to look at it if it's if it sells out and maybe do another run at some stage. But the Wednesday night, there's still tickets available. I think the Thursday is nearly gone. There's about 20 tickets left for that. And the Wednesday night, there's still tickets available. And although it's about alcoholism, it's not depressing. That's the reason that I made it. I made a kind of surreal comedy about my own alcoholism because I didn't want to put something on stage. It was just depressing. Yes. But alcoholics are going to see it. Fellow alcoholics are going to see it and they're getting something from it as well. So there's a little bit of drama, a little bit of comedy. And yeah, I'd urge urge people to come to see it if they're if they're if they're an alcoholic or if they're interested in dark comedy. Great, excellent. And the reviews with thanks, Tyke. There's a man who knows what a minute is. Uh, thanks, Tyke. Thank you for that. That's all those voiceovers really standing to you. And the best of luck with it because I gather it's a really really excellent show. I'm sorry I didn't have more time to talk about it. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.